This week, we have not one, but two doctors on the show, uh, one of which is Dr. Kevin Harris. He's the Program Director for Information System Security and Information Technology Management, that's a long title, at the American Public University System, and he's here to talk about the ethics, or lack thereof, of surveillance. In our second segment, we welcome back Bryson Bort. He's the founder and CEO of Scythe. He's going to demonstrate how to safely simulate ransomware and multi-staged APT with lateral movement in your production environment as well as make a really awesome announcement. In the security news, U.S. CERT is warns of remotely exploitable bugs in medical devices. McDonald's Hamburglar account attack no, YouTube isn't planning to jettison your unprofitable channel, or at least that's what Google wants us all to believe, and we're going to tell you otherwise. And more McDonald's Hamburglar account attack, and how memes could be our secret weapon against pesky bots. It sounds ludicrous, but it has merit in my opinion, and we'll learn all about all that and more on this episode of Paul Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to graphwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. Qualys is introducing a new prescription for security, and it's free. Global IT Asset Discovery and Inventory. Activate it today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys so you can achieve 100% near real-time visibility across your hybrid environments. As a doctor, my patients rely on me to give them sound medical advice. And when patients ask me about what to do about the constant drip, 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 and stinging sensation associated with bad OPSEC, I tell them 10 cc's of pure acidorian in a bourbon suspension administered orally. Side effects may include gender asphasia, species dysmorphia, and or death. Here's Paul. Welcome everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. It's episode number 627 recorded on November November that's the tele- November fourteenth, two thousand and nineteen, right sure here in G Unit Studios in Rhode Island. Uh, to my left, they call him the Doctor. It's Doctor Doug. What's up, Doug? I'm hooked on phonics, <laughs> or a missing B, or something like that. November, November, 
We listen to Doug because we just want to hear what he's going to say next. That's really... That's what I keep doing. <laughs> On the lines remotely, Mr. Jeff Mann is here with us. Jeff, welcome. Hey, thanks. I feel like I haven't been here in a long time. Uh, so, you, yeah, well, you have your own show now, so yeah. you know, you're slumming it with oh, us yeah, on there's that. Wall Security Weekly. Yeah, Left it all behind. a little bit. Yes. Cheers. Cheers, everyone. Uh, hey, we have some martinis here. Uh, Mr. Lee Neely is here with us as well, remotely, anyhow. Wish he was here in studio. That is one big glass of wine, my friend. Well, That's the whole bottle. makes a generous pour. It's great to be here. Feels like we haven't been here in a couple of weeks. And, yes. Uh, just recently took a quick tour of Vietnam, covered almost the entire country. That was amazing. Sweet. Now looking forward to cutting it up with a little security. <laughs> That's right. Mr. Joff right. Thayer is here with us remotely as well. Joff, welcome. Get a poll, P C I E I E I O, I think. Um, so <laughs> it's good to see you guys. Uh, it's great. It's great that Doug's on the show. I think, uh, although I'm not really that. sure. <laughs> you know, you love me. Uh, I don't. Is there an announcement in the? Oh yeah. Oh, Tyler's here as well. Yes. Yeah. There's Tyler. Ooh, Tyler. Look at that. In a, in a restaurant somewhere. It's very noisy. Uh, yeah, and he has. We won't, we won't yeah, talk to him, but we can just look at him every once in a while. We'll just cut to Tyler every once in a while. We'll all go, ooh, ah, Tyler. He's doing live animal experimentation or something like <laughs> so, that. He's got monkeys in cages in the background. <laughs> a, lot, a, lot of, a lot of pig squealing going on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, register for one of our or all of our upcoming webcasts with Kevin O'Brien of Great Horn or Steve Lobenstein of Core Security or both. By going to securityweekly.com, click the webcast drop-down menu, select registration. Of course, our previously recorded webcasts are there if you click the on-demand link in that same drop-down menu. If you attend any of our webcasts, you will get one CPE credit per webcast. I would now like to introduce our special guest for this segment, Dr. Kevin Harris. As I said, and I'll say it again because it's a really long and awesome title, Program Director for Information System Security and Information Technology Management at American Public University System. Did I get that right, Kevin? Drink. You got it. Appreciate you all giving me time. Yes, it's nice to have you. Nice to have you on the show, Kevin. Um, if you could start and just give us a little bit about your background and how you got started in information security. Yep. So appreciate it. So my background um, started in IT, um, doing support, um, then worked as a system analyst for a while. And at that time, we were doing networking and infrastructure. And at that time, there wasn't a definition of a word security per se. Um, that's before it became uh, sexy it is today with cybersecurity and information systems security. We were looking at logs, um, trying to set things up and keep it securely with access. And so that was kind of my introduction, uh, being an analyst um, and working in the network uh, infrastructure. So progressed on up through um, the IT areas, worked as a CIO for a little bit and um, transitioned over to the cyber area. Yeah. So what is your role today, Kevin? Yep. So today, um, work with our curriculum, um, cybersecurity, information system security, IT, just um, making sure that our students are prepared to go into the workforce and they've got the skills that they need to go on and help um, other companies and organizations mainly focus on securing data. And how did you come about uh, the topic of the ethics of surveillance? 
Yeah, so so it's one of the things I've been looking at lately in ethics of surveillance, the color of surveillance. Um, an area that I've looked at for a while is worked around um, digital uh, divide. But just now as we move into surveillance, and it's given us a lot of unique tools and new tools that we can really help monitor our own security, you know, whether it's our personal security or company's security. If you kind of think about it today, even um, if we leave home and we forget whether we've left our garage door over, we can check to see if that's closed. It's drastically different from when, you know, we were a kid and coming home and, you know, whether somebody came home with us, friends after school, you know, that was, we had to be trusted. Yeah, it's so a, we're now, I, and I was thinking about that this morning because um, I want to say it was maybe 10 years ago or so where folks in our community were basically proclaiming that privacy is dead. And, I, I don't I didn't disagree at the time, uh, but I always thought that it could be even more dead than it was <laughs> ten years ago. And pulling into work this morning, I really had that epiphany as we've got the new uh, alarm system here that you can arm and disarm from your phone. I can't wait to hack that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and in my home, how I have surveillance, how my neighbors have ring doorbells, and there's all these you know inc incidents lately that I'm like, you know, it's really hard to achieve privacy these days and i'll give you an example someone walking their dog in the neighborhood dog drops a deuce in front of the person's house now it gets caught on the ring doorbell uh -huh. and so you know post gets made to social media and and all these other things right and and even in front of my own home like if i want to go back and take a nap because i'm tired after everyone goes to work I, I i have cameras now i'm gonna i gotta disconnect the internet from my house or <laughs> you know what i mean go through great lengths i just i want to go take a nap right can't you just write a script <laughs> to loop yourself in doing something yes. productive like yes. washing dishes washing or something dishes and and laundry. Like, that's what i need like, to do you know. but and the epiphany was like this relationship now is not yes these devices in our homes and businesses provide a level of security but at what cost right that relationship we have with them is is pretty uh, uh, like difficult one, right? It really is. And talking to people, even friends, you know, a lot of people have that process is I don't have anything to hide, so I don't care. It's out there. The information's there. And they really don't realize, like, from my perspective, how, you know, everyone has something that they should be concerned about uh, regardless. Even these devices, what if somebody tracks, like you were saying, when are you coming and going, you know, if you're, sleep or home if somebody else access that then they oh, we know every day no one's home between x and x and so even if you don't have anything to hide you really should have that to hide of when you're coming and going so someone doesn't break into your house so i mean i think just getting the awareness level out there is just so important so but does it does it raise the level of ethics right does it uh, make people act in a more ethical manner because they know that they're going to be tracked well it I, i'm sorry one of the first things i saw with this was when uh, companies started we were interviewing people and i started going to myspace and looking people up that we were interviewing for right. jobs and one and this candidate we had for a cfo position why i had a myspace page showing this person uh actually doing lines of coke off of the of a table on the page and sh uh, the person didn't get the job and she I, it said, was a table, not a hook. Never mind. <laughs> and it wasn't me. I, but, um, but I mean, I, I, I saw that and I started thinking about the ethics of that. And, 
I think if you're a Kohlbergian pre-conventionalist, it does. I mean, if, if you're if you're that kind of person that you know, if a camera's on you, you wouldn't you wouldn't steal a wallet. Then yeah, it's gonna it's definitely right. I mean, that's why they use security cameras. I mean, the incidence of people being attacked goes down if they put a put a camera on something. It doesn't even have to be real. Well, it doesn't have to be real. We had fake ones. A lot of places I worked had little cameras yeah. that moved and a little yeah. red light on it. And you'd see people looking at it going, is that guy getting ready to kill me? Like, that camera works, man. I'm telling you. It's not cheap plastic with a 9-volt battery in it, I swear. I think it's like it's like antivirus, right? Like, it, it deters those 80% of people, right? And then you have the other, you know, determined attackers, determined thieves, whatever you want to call it, those are the those are the people that you want to record. So cameras are always a deterrent when we're doing big physicals. But just because there's a camera there it doesn't always mean someone's watching. And exactly. usually we'll do it without. Right. And if you know those things, you can go right past the camera and not even bat an eye because you know exactly what model that fake camera is because you saw you have, you know, you wouldn't looked at them at, that, uh, at the or fake you, camera store. Yeah, most of them are wife. Anyway, Kevin, I want to get your thoughts on this. Sorry. But, well, and, and with that, even with the cameras, the data that's being recorded, who are we comfortable having access to the data? You know, mm -hmm. so I think that's, you know, maybe we're okay with our employer having it. Maybe we're okay with that, but maybe we aren't okay with various government agencies having access uh, to our data and what happens when someone gets access to our data, where does it go from then? You know, what all these companies and like you mentioned, your neighbors and our neighbors are collecting data, who gets access to it once they record it? You know, I think that's a, big concern there too yeah is is a warrant even your local police force is a warrant enough of a checks and balance systems to gain access to this data because what if they're investigating a crime and they see that you know doug's uh got a, a warrant for him but in the logs doug's phone's connected to the wi-fi and they're like hmm doug was here now i can go arrest doug even though it had nothing to do with my other investigation mm -hmm. of you know someone getting beat up or whatever and the courts won't catch up with that for a while yeah i mean that's and we just arrest doug on principle anyway yeah it happens all the time <laughs> yeah if you get download all those videos until they take the youtube feed down kevin what's your students kind of take on this and do you do you have an ethics class in the uh computer curriculum yeah so we, we look at it uh we've got a couple ethics class and we've got a um Gets large percentage of students that are military military background, so I think they look look at that as that's the cost of um, you know security that giving up some of the privacy rights uh, are costs of securing the environment. But you know we do have we get in some good discussions there back and forth with you know how far are we willing to go on that kind of continuum of privacy versus security? Um, are we you know willing to give up our privacy for you know, a more secure environment. And I, you know, it varies, but I, I think a lot of our students are more willing and you know, interested in giving up a little bit more of the uh, security, um, a look privacy for security. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you, do you think I have I, a question? I, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let them ask. Was, so I was, I, I was wondering, um, I remembered back, I don't remember what year it was when the business that London had all those outdoor cameras watching everybody and right. there was a big uproar. And now you go to somebody's house and they've got a camera sitting on the mantle as you're sitting there having, you know, coffee or drinks or whatever with them. Is there not, on, not just an ethics problem, is there an etiquette problem here? Um, are we becoming, or are we just becoming desensitized and we're not going to see them anymore? 
Well, I, I think that is something. Even where we're places, if you've noticed at restaurants, you know, people are, uh, you know, doing videos. They're, you know, live, um, going live online. And so what they're capturing in the background, does everyone there want to be captured in the background? I, I think as a society, we are going more that, that route of just being desensitized. It, it's okay. Um, but it's kind of like you have to opt out to not want something posted. Chuck, I thought oh. you were going to say something. So. <laughs> well, I, yeah, what I, I was thinking about that question, too. I, I mean, I... But my other question was, do you think you can teach ethics? I, I mean, I, I've yeah. always had this sort of running debate about, you know, I, I, when I, I was first putting a security program together uh, in, long ago, the, the first cybersecurity program I built was in 99. And one of the questions that got asked at, the, at that university was, why don't you have ethics in this curriculum? You, you've got to teach people ethics or they're going to misbehave with this dangerous knowledge we're giving them. And, and my argument was, well, we teach biology without ethics. We teach all these mm -hmm. other sciences without ethics. And maybe that's good or bad. I'm not saying. But I was like, I don't want to sacrifice one of my three credit sequences <laughs> for this class when I'm not even totally convinced that you can, you can change someone's ethics. You can teach them about ethics and you can have them talk about ethics. But I'm not totally convinced that I can teach you to be ethical when you're 25 years old. It's a difference between awareness and training. Exactly. So, yeah, I, I think one of the things with that is, um, and I'm guilty of this too, just being in tech. I think a lot of times in tech, we want to implement the new technologies and new innovations. We we want to we want to put it out there. We want to start playing with it. I used to work with somebody. He would always try to say, uh, "Let's do it in the name of science." That was his way of saying, "Let's try it regardless." But, but I think raising that awareness and saying, "Okay, we always don't need to implement the new technology. Let's kind of dial it back a little bit and think about it um, before we flip that switch to turn it on." That what are some of these uh, implications that it might have on people? But don't you think we need to be pushing that way back down? Because some of us, for many of us, it's too late. I mean, when somebody comes in my lab and says, what if we irradiate this chicken and, and it turns into like a mutant chicken that takes over the world? I'm going to be like, hit it, you know. But I, I mean, I, you know, like that sounds cool. We just but, need Peter Griffin to get into a fist fight with it. And exactly. It'll be good. <laughs> and then that's how you get that. But I mean, but I mean, I, I, to me, it was like you're trying to teach these college students ethics and you know, we had people cheating. We had all kinds of issues that were going on. And, and all the, you know, they, they spent all this money on these ethics training sections to get people not to cheat. And, you know, we were looking at it. I was seeing the same level of cheating I saw before they spent $150,000 on these mottos they put on the wall. And, you know, well, ethics is important, you know, and, and I just didn't buy it. And I'm not sure I buy it today. Yeah, if, well, if you're unethical, why are you going to pay attention right. I mean, to the I, unethical people signed the ethics pledge right away and went, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board, man. I mean, I'm there. And, you know, I was like, if I sign this now, can I skip the rest of the training? Because, you know, and, and, and you know, they're like, oh, no, that, that would be unethical in and of itself. And I'm like, okay, I, I think I see where you're going with this. <laughs> I mean, Tyler? Ethic, ethics is similar to compliance, right? Like, Everybody is going to check that box as compliant because they don't want to get fined. They uh -huh. will will find that gray line to to walk, but that compliance doesn't equal equal security. And ethics is, I think, in the in that same category. Here, here. But it, Joff, you it, have you have to drink. That was compliance. Uh, hey. <laughs> oh shit! Oh, forgot. Almost forgot to drink. Yeah, it's um, interesting though, Kevin. No, in, no, I think oh, go ahead, I'm kind of on Doug's pages a uh, here a little bit. I think. Uh, Ethics is one of those things that you are uh, 
not born with, but but you are trained into. And those people that are not, uh, they're not going to learn it quickly or easily. Just my opinion. Yeah. Now, uh, Kevin, uh, ethics is you know a, a two-way street, right? And you bring up some very good points in your notes about uh, surveillance in the consumer aspect. We talked about people's homes in the government aspect. Um, you know, body cameras and drones and that kind of thing. Uh, the privatization of it, right? Corporate owned. I talked about the alarm system here. So with things like GDPR, we want privacy of our data. How do we opt out of and maintain privacy in the surveillance state? How do we say, yeah, no, I don't want to be in the background of someone's Facebook live stream. And when I walk by my neighbor's house, I don't want to be on camera all the time. And I don't want people picking up what I say in a restaurant uh, you know, camera is, is that enter the discussions uh, in with your students? Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely does enter just the discussions of talking about it. And then, even as you all bring out that everybody, you know, ethics is different. But I think that's why it's important to like we talk about policies and legislation so that we set some of those ethics that are out there um, and take away the kind of ethical responsibility and make sure that the sector has ethics but also that you know it's interdisciplinary so those policymakers and you know other um units of companies have that built into the structure of companies that hey we're not going to use our product in this way we're not going to allow this to happen with our products um we're not going to pilot certain programs and certain um you know that only focus on certain segments of our community. You know, I think those things are, even if the technical person doesn't understand that and somebody can set the, the policy that kind of limit some of that, it, it helps those conversations. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting for my privacy, if I were to, and, uh, you know, Tyler, you someone alluded to this, right? I get the laser pointer and I point it at the camera. I spray paint the camera. I do a Wi-Fi denial of service attack and that means like everyone's wi-fi goes down and surveillance for conceivably all of those systems goes down all at once just to protect one person's privacy what if there's someone else who is seemingly more unethical than i am pun intended sort of thing right uh then commit some crime like while that's happening right so i think it's a very interesting kind of dynamic we have but but i think this genie's out of the bottle and I'm, kevin may want to disagree with me but i mean i i don't think we're going to roll this back i i think that we have already gone down the slippery slope we've got ring doorbells on every house the police the smart police want body cams i mean they want them right because that protects them when they are wrongfully accused correct and you know and and, it, and they want their you know their comrades to not be doing bad things typically yeah so I, people want dashboard cams so when they get in an accident that they, there's a record of what happened and that guy's saying oh no he hit me and and you know and there's a road rage and there's a school shooter and on and on and on i don't think you're going to stuff this back in any kind of privacy bottle the danger i think that's still out there that we haven't dealt with but we're starting to have to deal with is what you said earlier is our data going to be reused against us? Right. Is an insurance company going to sit down and they're going to take video from your Facebook page and say, your lifestyle sucks? Uh, I saw I you know. on that show drinking martinis. What you're and, talking about, Doug? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, they're going to be like, we saw you with that cigar and that martini on Security Weekly 19 Shh, my times. My insurance company might be... Oh, mine is. They already canceled my policy. In fact, I saw the text come in a few minutes ago. Right. But, I mean, I do see them doing that because that's money. 
And I'm not sure how we stop that. We can pass all kinds of laws, but I don't know if they're going to stop that because there's, there's this weird global thing going on. And if they move it offshore and say, well, we aren't subject to that law and blah, 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 it's just going to get complicated. So I don't know how we get back to where people seem to want to get to, like 1930 or something. So around that, that's an interesting kind of dynamic though, right? Like if you don't have this stuff written down and you don't have these classes and you're not building a standard around something, then it's all perspective. Uh, one person's ethic or one company's ethics uh, are definitely not the same as another one. Mm -hmm. Take uh, something like uh, Ancestry.com or one of the genealogy ones. Right. At what point are those, is that particular data set or those genomic sequences going to be leveraged or bought or paid for yep. by life insurance companies as you know, pre-cancer markers or for your children's pre-cancer markers? Like, these are things that I don't, like this is already happening. I don't think we're rolling it back. So how do you take the next steps to protect what you're currently doing? Right, and that's without... a slippery slope, Tyler, because I don't have to go do those things. If enough of my family does, then yep. exactly. it don't even matter. Just like yep. Facebook, right? Like whoever tags yes. you and puts a picture, <laughs> you can't uh -huh. control your grandma. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I mean, and with those, you know, we talk about that, Tyler, like the DNA markers, you know, like even we've seen that used in those examples that one family member went in and, you know, wanted to use it, whichever one of the, you know, Ancestry.com or whichever it was. And then there was another family member lines down that they were able to find. They were, you know, um, you know, had committed a crime some years ago. Yep. So it's the same thing. You know, that family member didn't do anything, but they were kind of able to use that information. This is what, uh, this is what AI and uh, ML and quantum computing, like this is what all of these things I think are eventually leading up to, these genomic sequences, these large big data sets and, and big data analytics at itself is, is really a pretty big deal. So we're at that precipice where I think the privacy things, well, they're not going to make a huge difference. They still need to be put in place because they may slow things down. They may put some, uh, some kind of protections around them for maybe a, a little bit of protection in the future. But still, like, again, we're already at that point. I think we're well past, uh, you know, there's, there's enough data there, whether you want it to be or not, that mm. whether it's a government or businesses, they have that data. So people aren't caring. And we're going to drink again because Tyler said big data. Oh, man. Thank you. And ML. Thank you for that. And well, machine yeah. learning and AI and, and, and uh, Kevin, artificial well, it, intelligence and I'll neural just, networks. I'll just get the well. bottle. I think that, I, but I think that's a nice segue into uh, a, a topic on AI that leads into uh, not just racial bias, right, but all types of bias that are inherently built into AI because it's humans that are building and training those models. And, hey, Kevin, I don't know if you've done – uh, research on that. We've had one segment this year with Wynn Schwartow uh, actually on on that topic, but um, I was curious where your research has led you in that area. Yeah, I mean, when, when you talk about gender bias or racial bias, you know, with so much of this, you know, it has a potential. I saw that uh, Wozniak just said that, you know, he had got improved for, I think, 10 times the um, credit that his wife did, even though they have the same assets her credit score was higher than his. Um, the one of the only limited uh, things that were different that they when they applied for their uh, Apple Card was that you know she was a male, she was female. And so I mean, as we're giving computers more ability to make choices, you know these biases are built in, and a lot of times 
some of the biases are built in because we don't have a diverse set of designers or testers that are using it to catch these things earlier. So it's really important. You know, it's another um, reason that we should have, you know, a diverse population of coders and, you know, that our tech community needs to be diverse. Yeah, and it is interesting too when when we build systems to analyze data for security, it's it's really all about biases, right? Like we're allowing the computer to run a model that's our best guess, but it's basically a bias based on the data that we're feeding it that's bubbling up a certain event or series of events to go this is something you should pay attention to as an analyst or this is the credit limit that you should give someone, which is kind of interesting. I never really thought of it that way. Well, any, any good statistician will tell you that your prediction is only as good as the population that you're examining. And yeah. when you limit the population, like Kevin said, you know, if it's, if it's racially biased to start with or it's gender biased to start with, mm-hmm. it that's the population you're measuring. That doesn't mean you're measuring everyone. But we often make the assumption that we're measuring everybody when we're really measuring some other population we can't even adequately define. And that's mm-hmm. one of those you know, horrors of statistics where we, we get into that kind of stuff. And AI learns these horrible traits from us. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yep. Yes, which is what scares me about AI. Uh, and Kevin, you had something you want to talk about with the, the targeting of various like religious groups and activists and ethics group is that on the surveillance side or the ai side or a combination of both kind of combination first and it's our comfort combination of both but it's our comfort level i think if we you know all say you know should we use uh ai or our data sets and surveillance to help identify you know terrorists everyone would probably be in agreement you know that that's a great thing but then it's how is that determined of who's likely to be a terrorist you know and then when we start going out and saying um you know, like Doug said, what's statistics behind it? And so then if we start targeting certain communities and placing certain surveillance there, you know, is it a self-predicted prophecy? If you put more surveillance in a certain area, are you going to catch more people committing crimes? And is, is that population actually committing more crime or is the surveillance, you know, creating a situation that you're able to right. uh, find people that are committing that crime? Jeff? Uh, so two comments and it's been bubbling up inside of me, uh, on what you just said, comment is simply minority report. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but, but related to that, I think, uh, I would be interested in hearing your thoughts or how, what kind of thoughts or things you're doing with all of this surveillance and even bleeding into AI in terms of sort of a new trend, at least in conference talks, because it seems that all I do is go to conferences these days, and that would be deep fakes. I mean, with the, the deep fakes, you know, it, it's another thing. So if you're, you know, do your eyes deceive you? You know, is really, can you trust what you're seeing and hearing now? You know, so I think that's that's another thing, but that's awareness is there's a large, you know, population that, you know, probably could see anything and they wouldn't understand, you know, a deep fake or, you know, that that's a possibility. So even, you know, with the surveillance or using AI, that if, you know, we've got a large portion of our community that's not aware of some of these, you know, um, things that can happen, you know, then that's the risk of their actually believing it. But because I, I still believe that mu- much of society today is still in that trust but verify. And when we start allowing 
AI to create things like deep fakes or start relying on surveillance that's all digital. Uh, we inherently as humans, we, we trust it. But if something doesn't look right, we might, we might try and go verify that. And what I hope is that we start flipping that model. As all these things go digital, a lot of these things go AI, right, to produce some type of result, are we going to trust that? Or are we going to verify it before we actually trust it? And I think that's the case with deep fakes. And as how well. do you verify? Hey, look, it? Like, yeah, my friend was in a you know a porn video, right? And like you just a lot of people just blindly trust that. Like I'm saying, like I don't. Know. I, just but I, mean, I don't it. even know how you verify some of this stuff unless you start putting you know right, hashes or something on on mm-hmm. the on video to say I put my personal signature on this video to prove it was me. Because, you know, I, I mean, we, you don't even know that we're here right now. We could all be just like, you know, artifacts of the thermostat True. system projecting us because it got smarter <laughs> over, over time. And uh, that's worrisome because I don't know how we stop that. I mean, yeah, if, if my dashboard camera is completely faked or I download some algorithms, it'll let me fake it so that it, you know, blots out any accidents I'm in or, you know, erases the right. alcohol the, <laughs> from the car image. <laughs> Well, I, I think if it's, it's something I think good, it's, I might put my hash on it and go, yep, that was me. Yep, totally absolutely. Me. That, deep, that <laughs> deep porn fake was indeed me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but well, someday, people, someday, someday it's true. Right. Yeah, someday, uh, you know, someday deep fix is going to go beyond porn and revenge porn and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, what happens when you get into a surveillance situation and, and, you know, I can see it in both directions. Do you, do you trust the video evidence or don't you trust the video evidence? And how do you validate or verify that it's real or fake? Because, you know, two things could happen. Somebody could be digitally removed or somebody could be mm-hmm. digitally inserted. And, and I, I can only imagine that as technology advances, the algorithms that are enabling the creation of what we're calling deep fakes is only going to get better and better. And, 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 you know, as a as a hacker, I can certainly think of lots of ways that that can be abused, and I'm not sure that we're really prepared for how to address all the things that could could happen and go on. We just need that yeah. test for replicants. Yeah, exactly. So Where's the prelude test right now? Prelude to to our story. You see a tortoise lying in the road. Yeah. <laughs> what's that? What's that famous science fiction movie from the? It was like a TV movie from the seventies, and if you had glasses on, you could see all the aliens had taken uh, over. Uh, they oh, live. They live. Yeah. They, they live. live. Thank with you. With Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yes, that's the yes. one. That's the the epic fight scene. It was directed by John Carpenter. Ah, yes, oh, yes. Yeah. I knew Doug would know. Yeah, what was classic. it? But uh, a V was pretty similar, right? Where yeah, the V was another one, like but it was yeah. like, yeah, you could, the aliens all looked human to save budget. <laughs> I mean, the old trick of special effects, like, no, they look just like humans. It's like it was an illusion. Uh, X Files did that too, right? Yeah, they yeah. did. Yeah, well, the, it was early already, deep fake, really, is what we're talking about. Right. Yeah, there's already a lot of work around like identifying a lot of these deep fakes. These are currently actively being used by several apt groups yep. and, and or criminals so you know i think we've already passed that point of you know deep fakes being leveraged for commercial gain or nefarious reasons so we're at that point where now you know how bad does this get uh, we leverage it pretty frequently for for engagements it takes a substantial amount of personas and and personalities to embed into a lot of these different groups or you know ethnic or diverse areas and it's really hard to do quickly at scale without doing that. So, you know, both ways can be used. Uh, Facebook and and uh, LinkedIn both are 
heavily combating this by having algorithms and AI and machine learning and all this stuff around trying to identify those markers. But like Joff was saying, as those markers get harder to detect and those data sets become uh, less and less human interactive, that's when it starts to get really scary where you guys are talking like, how do we, how do we set up and prepare for that moving forward? All of a sudden, I'm not convinced that we're talking to Tyler. <laughs> yeah, I, well, was, I, think, I was never I convinced we were talking to, good, to Tyler. I think it comes back to good security practices, right? I mean, you know, we unfortunately, I think in the industry, we've not done a good job of promoting technologies that um, that actually allow people uh, to validate authenticity of the sender, that allow to validate things like non-repudiation. Um, you know, if we had done a better job of that, uh, where where people had an instinctive go-to, like, okay, I see a video, how do I verify? There is a technology for me to verify by either looking at a hash, looking at some sort of digital signature, looking at some sort of authenticity chain, whatever that is. Um, then, uh, the, you know, the deep fake uh, would be would be much more challenging. But but we have not done a good job of implementing technologies like that, well, and I and, think. And, that and is the, root, the essence of the problem. The root cause even further than that, Joff, is because you know we've we've relied on security to take care of it, and it hasn't. If only we had paid more attention to compliance. Oh, well, I, but, oh, it, I mean, oh, but, hold on, hold it. on. Both Joff and Jeff, I think, have a, a valid points. Yes. Um, that the way that we've been trained since the dawn of computing to validate our identity is with the username and password. And that mm-hmm. was the very first early way in the first computer systems to validate who you are so that only you could see your files. It was more about protecting your files than your identity. Yes. And, and I agree, Jeff, compliance still, I think, requires that, but as a security measure, right? And, Joff, I, I like your point because we talk about how identity is so important today, and it's a difficult challenge because we're stuck in the 50 plus years ago when someone created the password that that's the way we validate our identity. Then we came up with this preposterous thing that of multi-factor authentication, which, okay, I don't have just one password. Now I have basically two (laughs) passwords and that's supposed to validate my identity. I think it needs to extend into what Joff was alluding to is how do I have a digital signature, a better way to verify that Paul is Paul. That not only helps against deep fakes, but it also helps us in a lot of countries, right? You've got your digital identity, uh, your passwordless system that gives you access to the government resources. And yes, there are vulnerabilities, but just like anything, of course there are, but it's a better way to verify your identity. Security needs to go in that direction. Exactly right. And I think a classic example uh, is is the PGP example or GPG example, however however you want to term it. Uh, but, you know, that technology did not get integrated into the mainstream, and yet um, the, the concept um, of, of implementing uh, public-private key cryptography for, uh, for, for, for the, uh, you know, verification of the, of the authentic source um, means something significant. Mm. Um, and, and we've used it in other ways, right? We've used it for key exchange all around the Internet, but we've kind of stopped and I think we need to take it further. I think uh, in particularly public-private key uh, cryptography is one of the most important advances that we have. And we need to push on that lever a little bit further uh, and, and, and use it um, you know, for more of the validation tasks that we require. 
Well, this well, is, this well is wait, 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 hold on. Kevin, Kevin had a comment. <laughs> and, and I think as we talk about this, as we're introducing new technologies, like someone bought it before, that it can't be looked at as we've got the design team or the innovation team, and then we've got the security team. Because a lot of time what happens there is a new product gets developed, and then it gets pushed to release prior to the security team being able to implement new security measures with it and do some of the things that we've talked about versus if the security was part of the design um, stage and the individuals that were on the design team were focused on security um, as well as the innovation and the new tech um, of getting it out, out to order. Jeff. Well, and just to clarify what I was saying earlier about compliance, and I, you know, I was taking a jab at Jeff, but security alone, which is what most of us think of we've had up to this point, isn't getting the job done. Uh, I would still maintain that the only thing that's going to make a difference is regula- regulation and compliance. You know, somebody holding somebody's feet to the fire. Other, you know, otherwise, what are what are the motivators for for uh, any of this to change? And, and the and the only analogy I can think of that kind of comes close is think about the automotive industry. When I was a kid, probably when Doug was a kid too, uh, cars didn't have seat belts. I don't know if airbags had even been invented yet they had horses um, that pulled a, yeah there was this a, thing a in bucket. front called yeah. a horse <laughs> yeah yeah there was a, there was a board yeah, Wilbur. That, i mean i i remember being a kid going to the beach in in the parents station wagon and and you know we had a large family and they would throw blankets and towels on top of all the luggage in the back of the station wagon and let me climb up there and and you know hang out and you know, to my to this day, I think, wow, I was just a torpedo ready to be launched. But I'm sure I'm not the only kid that grew up that way. But you know, what made the auto industry change? It, it wasn't all the companies voluntarily saying, "Wow, we should put safety systems in." It it was it was regulation. Yeah. Well, I, I will say regulation with a background, which is compliance. But I will say, I one, think it's going to be a mix of both. I think really it's going to be a mix of both. We're talking about carrot and stick. And yeah. uh, I think in order to solve some of these problems, we're going to have some of what Jeff uh, likes because he's a very big, big proponent of sticks. Uh, and we're going to need some technology to be to be the carrots. But rep, non-repudiation is one of the things that's going to tie all this together because that that's the non-repudiation is stuck in like the 17th century. Two, yeah, years ag- two years ago, I was arguing with someone on a campus who said no, that... No, get out. Imagine that. Who said <laughs> that a, a little scribble in a little box that no one could read was far more important than an email verification because, you know, my signature, my word is my bond. And I said, I'm going to order some sealing wax so you can verify, you know, and it comes from the king because my ring is the only one like it. And we still aren't very close to that. And that saves us from deep fakes. I mean, I'm talking about like large-scale non-repudiation. So if, if you have a crystal embedded in your forehead that verifies your identity, you know, then when the deep fake comes, it's like, no, that's not his crystal. It's something else. And it's an infinity stone that brings the vision? To- it's, a, anyway. it's a stone of infinity, maybe. <laughs> I, I, you know, something like that. Well, yeah. I, I, I agree with Joff, though. I, I think it's a both and, but I think uh, you know, regulation is going to drive change, and then people are going to try to find cost-effective automated you know, technology ways to solve the problem. But, uh, you know, they're not going to solve the problem with technology if there's no market to sell it. And the only way that there's a market to sell it is if there's regulation. 
uh, uh, Kevin, closing closing <laughs> well, thoughts before we get to five questions. All right. No, just, just as we're talking about, uh, you know, market, I think a lot of it too goes to the market. You know, once someone gets our data, are they willing to sell it? How much are they willing to sell it for? And even we give up some of our surveillance with rewards programs, with um, apps that we download for different stores that we go into. You know, they survey um, what aisles that we go in what products we stop and take a look at, you know, all that can be sold um, to someone either to their, you know, even to their competitors that are in the same uh, retail uh, space. Um, if, if that's another revenue stream for them, they'll look at that. Uh, Kevin, we just have five questions left for you. Are you ready to play five questions with security weekly? <laughs> Let's do it. There are no right or wrong answers in one question. Is multiple choice with only two possible selections. So, Kevin, three words to describe yourself. Um, three words to describe myself. Fun. Um, what do we do? Fun. Learner. Um, a friend. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? <laughs> Now, is this a surveillance that may come back in the Yeah, future? I was going to say, this um, is going into your file, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, caution. Let's go, with, let's go with ice since it disappears. There you go. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Uh, what's next? In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Let's go. Let's go first. I'm not familiar with this. So let's do first. first. That's an acceptable answer. Uh, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Uh, two celebrities to be my parents. Uh, is that the fifth one I was going to say while I'm thinking? Let's, uh, let's, let's come back to that. On the one. serial killer thing, I read something where someone said uh, I would... Uh, hide the body somewhere, right, temporary. I would call in that the body was somewhere, like, out in the woods. They would go dig it up, not find the body. Yep. Then I'd move the body to that That's spot. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, you know, this is, okay. Maybe I said it. I'm not even <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think my answer was I would eat it. <laughs> I mean, it's like Damn. a win-win. <laughs> I can think of I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Kevin, there are no wrong answers on the parents. Yes, there are no wrong answers, and we won't we won't judge you at least in, in front of you anyway. We'll, we'll wait till after the show before yeah. we do that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> His answers were ridiculous. Let's let's just go with uh, the Obamas. There you go, Kevin. Okay. Thank you so much for appearing on Paul's Security Weekly. All right, appreciate it. Thank you. Without taking a short break, come back. Bryson Bortz coming up next. Stay tuned. NetSparker, the developers of desktop and cloud-based web application security scanners that enable you to automatically identify vulnerabilities in your web applications and web services. NetSparker scanners employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities with their proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at netsparker.com or email at contact at netsparker.com. 
Recorded Future, they help security teams make more confident decisions faster. Recorded Future's technology automates broad collection and analysis of cyber threat data and delivers the rich external context you need to understand alerts and emerging threats. With real-time threat intelligence from Recorded Future, security teams respond to threats 63% faster and find undetected threats 10 times quicker. To get started, go to recordedfuture.com forward slash security weekly and sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Data. Every day, you'll receive an email with the top results for trending technical indicators, cyber news, exploited vulnerabilities, suspicious IP addresses, and more. Subscribe today and stay ahead of cyber attacks. Endgame's converged endpoint security platform is transforming security programs, their people, processes, and technology with the most powerful endpoint protection and simplest user experience, ensuring analysts of any skill level can stop targeted attacks before information theft. Endgame unifies prevention, detection, and threat hunting to stop known and unknown attacker behaviors at scale with a single agent. For more information, visit endgame.com. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Uh, quick announcement. We've got a new website that you can filter and find stuff. On that new website, we're running a listener feedback survey. We want to anonymously collect information from our listeners so that we can improve the show. It is in the survey menu on the website, securityweekly.com. Check it out. Uh, this segment, we would like to welcome Mr. Bryson Bort, the founder and CEO of Scythe. Welcome him back to the show. Bryson, welcome back. Sporting in the epic hoodie. It's very nice. Game on, Paul. Game on. <laughs> Game on. I'm excited for this. Uh, and this is a, you know, two big kind of uh, announcements. One is uh, a technical segment uh, where you're going to show us how to simulate some ransomware. And the other is a very special announcement. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave the, the listeners wondering about that one for a little bit. But, okay. Uh, yeah, so um, actually planning two demonstrations, um, doing the dangerous thing of doing it live. So, Yay. you know, when you're working with synthetic malware, we're going to see how this all plays out. But we're going to do a ransomware simulation, and then we're going to show how to do a multi-staged uh, advanced persistent threat, cyber, 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 um, with lateral movement. Fantastic. Take Followed away. by a sexually conflicted unicorn demonstration. <laughs> Josh, Look, you I'm, had your I'm laterally moving. Fast. It's not my fault you're jealous. <laughs> <laughs> Species dysmorphia is no laughing matter. <laughs> you made that up just on the fly for this. He I, did just I make did. that up, but it's pretty impressive. We just want to know what Doug's going to say next. That's why we keep him around. Man skills, man. Man skills. <laughs> wow. And let's right, get so to should, it. should I share my screen now, gentlemen? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and when I say gentlemen, I, I clearly mean that term loosely. Yes. Very loosely. <laughs> Very loosely. All right. We're going to go into our remote, remote desktop here. Voila. All right. So, okay. So we're here. We're on a prototypical um, endpoint. So we are somebody's random computer in an enterprise. And what we're going to demonstrate here is how you would simulate ransomware in a production environment. Because obviously, actually ransoming their computer can be problematic. Turns out, unless you're the city of Baltimore, you don't want to do that, um, you know, just, just for fun. That was a bad joke. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> okay, so what we're going to do here is we have a predefined threat for ransomware that we've already created. I'm going to pull it up. And what this does is this communicates with HTTPS 
and it already has built in the logic of how it's going to follow. Um, so it's going to be a beachhead that lands, and then it loads some additional modules from the C2 server. And then what it's going to do is create some arbitrary, oh, I actually have to name it. It's going to create some arbitrary files. Help if I can type. Security Weekly Ransom. It's coming for you, Paul. Excellent. It's just a simulation, okay. right? What was that? It's just a simulation, right, Bryson? Sure, yes, it's just it is. a simulation. Sure. So yeah, that's, that's how we're said. going to um, show. So what, what I'll do is I'm going to launch it because since this is a, a real world, it takes about a minute or two for the uh, payload to actually run through all the commands and do what it's going to do. So what I'm going to do is um, get this started, and then we can chat a little bit about what it's doing while it's off running and doing it. Um, so the deployment method is arbitrary. Um, obviously, like with all um, payloads, you can choose how to deploy it. So we're just going to run it locally here for sake of time. Does that payload need to be whitelisted or anything, Bryson? Or is that all handled as far as the obfuscation? And so that is user's choice. Um, the base payloads are available. So the way it works is, um, and this will I'll show this more on the APT side, um, so right now, um, for what's happening is, I'm gonna move this out of the oh, wrong button. I'm gonna move this out of the way because we're gonna see something pop up when it's done. Um, so the way it works is you you provide the specifications of how does this talk, and there are numerous ver numerous variables about um, how things can talk that you can change through the GUI, um, mm -hmm. as well as we provide a software development kit so you can build your own communication modules, and then what it can do, so what are its capabilities. And that's the base thing that um, the Scythe platform is then going to just-in-time build just those components together for your own um, unique payload. And so that payload is then available in 32 and 64-bit XE, DLL for your Windows, um, shellcode, uh, ELF for Linux, and then um, I always forget what the, the Mac extension is, um, but Mac as well. Oh, and here we can see it just popped up. So what's just happened here is that on our this payload on our compromised host, um, it landed, and then we can see all the commands that it ran on its own. Um, so it loaded some additional modules down, and then what it did is it created um, five um, arbitrary files on the local computer. And now we can see it's populated in the, the folder. Um, so we've now made up five files that are 10 megabytes each. So the payload knew to do that. And then what it did is it used local encryption to encrypt them. Meanwhile, we have all the C2 traffic tracking all of those actions, as well as we now know that this computer was um, successfully, here we can move it over, successfully those, ransomware. Those transports are independent of the actual ransomware module. Those are just part of the Scythe platform still, correct? So that's the communications method that you choose that's a part of that payload. So your ransomware can talk through any number of communication protocols. The ransomware module itself, though, here we can see the encrypted files, as well as we told it to download a text file from the internet that said, I've got all the files, give me money, call 8675309. Nice, very nice. <laughs> and so basically you created files on the system and then encrypted them to simulate ransomware. Right, so what we have is host activity that ties to 
um, local encryption of files. In this case, we intentionally created files, so it's completely transparent to the user. Um, we intentionally popped it up on their desktop to alert the user, although, of course, you don't have to do that. You can encrypt these files in some obscure directory where nobody would ever see it. Um, for fun, we downloaded a ransom note. You don't even have to do that. Um, but in terms of providing the full user experience, um, that's the complete cycle of doing that. So for the, the host activities. And then that all ties to the network communications back to the C2 server, which also allow you to correlate host and network activities from a detection and response perspective. And then back here at the site server, we have the, um, the view of the enterprise to show all of the parts that have been ransomware for a high-level um, paintball view. Now, is, is the encryption um, the means of which it's being encrypted? Are you going to make that uh, a module as well, like where you're doing something like AES, you're doing API calls for encryption using Windows, using its own encryption algorithm? Yeah, so right now it's using uh, Windows local Windows encryption. Um, but uh, this is probably as good a time as any to segue right into what we are announcing. Um, <laughs> so we are going to be launching what we call the Marketplace last year. Um, one of the cool things about our platform was uh, that it was it's modular. You can put together whatever pieces you need to accomplish whatever you need to do for a red team or a purple team assessment or for the blue team to validate controls and remediation. Um, and we provide a software development kit. That software development kit allows folks to build their own modules. Um, and so what we're going to be launching at this marketplace is a number of the consultancies, um, Black Hills, for example, is one of the customers that we have that uses us. Um, they will be able to build their own modules and threats and share or resell those on the marketplace with their brand. So the Black Hills brand will go up with modules that will be driving the extensibility of what this platform can do. Um, so this is, a, this is a real big pivot to where the community is going to be driving all the innovation of offensive assessment at the edge versus my team. That's awesome. And, That's and Bryson, this, this marketplace will be like how uh, well will you or not uh, kind of like restrict access, right? Because what I find today is advanced pen test teams that are <clears throat> testing more advanced uh, companies with mature security programs aren't really releasing all of their bags of tricks because, yep. you know, things get signatures for them. Uh, I had that same conversation um, with uh, Dave Kennedy um, at Wild West Hackenfest, and we talked about the uh, essentially the proliferation of what the good guys are trying to do and how it gets into bad guys' hands. Yes, um, that too. And so the marketplace is going to be restricted to enterprise customers and the contributors of to the platform. Um, contributors will not be able to download other folks' stuff. They'll only be able to manage their own. So only the enterprise customers, which are mostly Fortune 1000s, are the ones who are going to be able to, to download these. And these modules don't work on their own. The modules are built to be integrated into the Scythe platform. So they're not the kind of thing that can really <laughs> proliferate on their own. Gotcha. Um, and on that note, the other thing that we're going to be adding is for consultancies, we're going to be providing what we call market intelligence. So we have a large backlog of requests that have come from um, enterprise customers to say, hey, we really wish it did this. Let's say, you know, it talked through Dropbox. And those enterprise customers are going to be able to provide a bounty number, say $5,000, $10,000 to the first consultancy that is able to deliver that module that does that. And then, of course, 
they'll be able to resell that module on their own um, through the marketplace, having hit the bounty. That's awesome. What, it, what like are that. these? Uh, what are these modules written in? Good question. So right now uh, they are only available in C code. Um, in a month, they we will be migrating to Python. So there's going to be two elements to that. Um, the first is through the marketplace, um, you'll be able to build modules that uh, you can write in Python. Um, and then um, in a later release, uh, how that's going to work into the roadmap, and this is a big thing that a lot of red team operators have asked for, is the payloads will be able to have their own integrated Python interpreter. So you'll be able to run Python commands on the fly with all of your payloads. So it won't simply be like PyDEXE. It's going to be bring your own interpreter as yep. far as the Python said? Nice. Yep. Mm. That's, we're building awesome. that. That's awesome. Interesting. Is there going I to mean, be a free academic version we can use at school? <laughs> um, so that's funny <laughs> you say that. Uh, we already have uh, one university as a customer, and they have built their entire curriculum around the platform because it's an wow. easy way for an instructor with all of the offense abstracted for them to bring realism into the classroom to teach host and network um, forensics, analytics, and response. Nice. Mm. Hmm. If I could afford it, I'd give it a shot. <laughs> it's more affordable than you realize. Uh, I'm, um, I'm so throwing actually, you softballs here. So yeah, <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> you got one. I, I, I hate to, I hate getting to that part for this kind of thing, but no, seriously, we have uh, special rates for partners and universities um, because the that's not where we make money. Where we make money are the large companies that um, uh, really need the whole work yeah. integrated workflow and the fact that this saves all of their teams across mm. DevSecOps, Blue Team, Red Team, um, a lot of time and money. Um, you got to train the future. I mean, that's what the forensics companies learned was if they started you know, giving this stuff to universities, they, they weren't going to sell it there anyway. And then all of a sudden people are graduating going, this is what I want to use. So, as, exactly. so as, part of, as part of this, uh, Bryson, what's the kind of the, the overall big vision? What are the, the big features that are in the works that are not available currently? Uh, sure. So uh, the thing that's also going to come out with our uh, next release, um, and this is where I give the, the business answer, which is we are planning for this to be released in January. And the engineering <laughs> answer is probably February or March, because that's how that always works. Yep. Um, is that the platform is going to be Turing complete with a virtual file system. What does that mean? Um, hmm. What that means is all of these modules right now, um, they can do a certain amount of logic on their own to, to go into the environment, but most of it's going to come from you automating them to do exactly certain things, and it still requires a lot of manual operation. Well, and don't cringe at this term, but imagine machine learning in malware. And I don't mean machine learning as in this thing just does everything, but that modules can be taught to work with each other based on what they learn in the environment. Mm -hmm. So if you do credential theft over here, that module can pass that information to the privilege escalation module, which can automatically consume it and locally escalate privileges. Wow. And then if I have a discovery module over here that uses Active Directory to discover all of the hosts that are around it, then I can match that to the lateral movement module, which will automatically consume all of those IPs and run itself to laterally move through all of them. 
that's what I mean that's going to come that, with that kind of thing. Does that persist and then over time it gets even better? I mean, does it just keep building on itself so you have, you know, after years of use, you've really got this like really sophisticated environment that, that maybe is unmatched anywhere else? Uh, honestly, that's that's really user's choice. The um, the if, if you were to have a campaign alone persist and continue to work and build up this knowledge, um, certainly that campaign can do that. Yeah. But the value that we see in the platform is the ability to um, continually run um, lots of different campaigns at scale. No, I like so, I like both. I mean, I, I I mean I like both. I mean, I do. I like both those ideas. I like having like a persistent platform that I've always got out there. That I put my best tricks in, so I can it can learn. I can learn, and then I've also got my you know isolated stuff that I'm doing on a one off. So I'd be like test this, see what it does. How it? How Doug, is that scripting? We're going to blame you written? when Skynet comes into existence, and it's not my fault. Hey, Someone I, in the end user welcome license our, agreement I, says I, I you can't welcome, do that. I welcome our new overlords. <laughs> I just want to get on the record of stuff. Oh, uh, you're a suck up in advance. You know hey. that, that, that you're twenty to thirty years ahead of your time in terms of sucking up to our robotic or overlords. Yeah, when you're all asking me for permits for life, you, you you'll see. <laughs> <laughs> okay, meat bags. Joff denied. <laughs> <laughs> What are what are those uh, what are those scripts uh, being written in? Like, how are you handling the the scripting, or I guess uh, the development of that scripting language? Um, for the you're talking about for the the Turing complete system. Yes. So all of that will be managed inside the GUI. So the GUI will present um, to you essentially modules will be able to consume these things. Um, so all of your variables are defined for the module. And then you're able to essentially, you know, variable to action to other module to variable. Nice. Okay. I want it. Bryson, uh, along those lines, are there kind of like uh, AI components or in the roadmap that, you know, I basically give it a direction, right? I don't have to give it specific techniques to deploy the payload or specific techniques to phone home, but it kind of learns from the environment and does some of that stuff on my own with like my direction, not necessarily specifically like try SSH and try this method. No, so it's it's not AI. This is you give it spe specific parameters and it will go and learn the environment within those parameters, consume them, and then as, it, as you've given it that logic, um, use those to grow. So this thing is not, mm, this thing gotcha. is not learning so much as um, a more advanced, advanced way to interact with the environment on the logic you've given it. I mean, going back to two years ago where we first had this conversation and I remember Joff's going, um, raised the question. He's like, are you replacing the red team operator? Mm. And I don't see this platform ever replacing the red team operator. All we're doing is making it easier to take red team as a function to the next level. But it's kind of a fly-by-wire for the red team operator, so you're you're facilitating their ability to do this very quickly. Correct. Yes. Um, as well, as, the way I look at it is, we're taking the eighty to ninety percent rework off of a red team yeah. operator's plate and allowing them to, because the reason they're a red team operator, the reason they have that expertise, is that human element of being really good at thinking on the edge. Yep. Mm. Well, now your whole job is gets to be the edge because we're taking the rework out of it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's you know become... th that's a that's a really good point. I remember Bryson and I having that conversation, and and I, I related to him at the time that you know it, not so much I wouldn't call it so much red team as 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 I would call it purple team. So we, mm -hmm. you know we do it yeah. we do an engagement um, where we're um, 
we do a cooperative scientific test basically with the customer. Um, and uh, a lot of that is um, kind of routine uh, work. And if you can automate the routine work uh, as you escalate the, um, as I would call it, the noise level of your various uh, payloads and your commands and things that you're landing in that environment, um, then as Bryson just said, you're taking the grunt work, uh, for lack of a better word, away from the operator and allowing them to think about the more sophisticated aspects, perhaps implement some new um, some new tests that, that can be further automated down the road. So it's going to be something that, that you can build on yourself and I, and I think that's where uh, that's where the platform here has, has, has got some some advantages um, although I admit Bryson I'm guilty of not exercising the platform uh, as much as I should have uh, but uh, now that uh, you're at this position I think things have matured a lot I'm probably going to look back into it and we'll uh, we can see where it goes actually also- I want I want to call that out because um, I've had number of conversations of the the last two years uh, throughout industry. Um, And that conversation with Joff was a very defining moment for us at the very beginning in terms of understanding um, the concern and the perspective. Uh, Another conversation that I want to call out was a really difficult conversation I had with Matt Toussaint a year ago. And Mm -hmm. Matt was very critical of where we were at that moment. And it was great because we made some substantial changes based on that. And so the biggest thing that I just want to sort of thank you, I mean, in this case, you, Joff, to Matt, and numerous others who we've had all of these conversations with over the years, um, that's shaped the platform. We've listened. And yep. uh, at the yep. end of the day, um, it, it, that's just, that has meant a lot to us. And I, what I would recommend to anybody in the community um, and is go and talk to the vendors. Say what you like. Say what you don't like. Give your opinion. A good vendor we'll listen to you. And that's the yeah. same advice I would give to the vendors, which is listen to the community. At the end of the day, you only get one shot for somebody to try out your idea, no matter how wonderful you think it is. Um, both sides benefit, and we all as a community benefit from making all of these ideas better together. Hey, so let me uh, let me go ahead and clarify my comment too. Um, the reason I'm guilty of, of not doing uh, enough with the platform is because pretty much I delegated it to Matt. So I, uh, <laughs> I seeded those conversations after Bryson and I were um, literally leaning over a piano at DerbyCon, uh, which if, if I remember correctly. And, that was, uh, it was said, the oh piano God, in the back uh, end. Later on, I just don't have the time for this. And so Matt really took it up, and Matt's had some very constructive follow-on conversations. So really glad to see that that has gone places. And uh, I, I, I think you're onto something, to be honest. And uh, I, I thought so at the time, and I still do think so. Is, is leaning over a piano some kind of Australian thing? Is that, is it like, I think it's a euphemism. Uh, yeah, I uh, thought it was a <laughs> euphemism. <laughs> there was just a baby grand piano there in the hallway. What am I going to say? <laughs> so, Joff, don't uh, worry. Anything we say that's literal, they're going to take out of context. Yeah, you can't win. We remember the truth. I'm guilty of doing that as well. So, you know, hey, fair fair game. So, Bryson, given given those conversations, when when you talk to, let's take Red Teamers uh, as the first example. When you talk to Red Teamers today that are using the product, what's the most impactful thing that they're doing with the product that's helping them the most? Sure. So, I think um, this is where we go to the... uh, the, the phrase du jour, which is miter attack. Yep. And yep. 
uh, miter attack is something if you to do right is actually very hard um, because you need to. Today's red team is really good at the traditional hacker getting in. I call it the surgical strike, right? I get a one to one. I get in. I own domain, and I've I now have all the crown jewels. And I drop mic and I'm done. That's my report. Um, whereas our customers are like, okay, well that's great, but I want I want you to do a miter attack on me. And it's kind of like, well, how do how do I do that? Like. I need to now do all these different forms of attacks, all of these different forms of communications and all the, all these pieces. And how do I do that? And that's part of how the traditional breach and attack simulation space has come about because they're like, well, let's, let's turn that into a checklist. Um, and that's really the tension with the red team consultancies and the way the enterprises have been approaching this to some degree because the enterprises are going, well, if I just install some agents here and I just run these checklists on host and at network, I validated my controls and I've now gotten an attack view. Whereas the consultancies are going, yeah, but that's not real world hacking. Like that's not an attack because an attack is I've done something, I've learned some information and then I use that information to go here. So tying it back into attack, um, they don't exist as checklists. They exist as states. Um, it's like a chessboard. I can't, like, where the state of the chessboard is affects what my next move is. And MITRE ATT&CK is basically saying you have these attacks available at these states of the chessboard. And if you can't do that, you're not doing a real attack. Does it's that like, make sense? It's like a, a, a shifting set of patterns on that attack framework, though. So uh, I was calling it uh, Rorschach tests where you're looking at attack and you see all these different patterns and you know and if you could play them like a whole bunch of them you would almost see this animation of something yeah. going would be a real world attack whereas like they have this very static view of it it's like bang there it was but if you could play a long attack on 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 the fr- or a long you know a whole incident on the framework it would be like this animation of things going on well i i think a, a, a attackers and defenders would look at various paths and think of them as very linear and that attackers will take the very same path, where many of those paths might start out the same. And Bryson, what I hear you saying is, yeah. at a certain juncture, now there's three or four different roads right. I can go down, and I just happened to chose, you know, door number two, and then I wrote my pen test report, right? right? And the customer's left going, well, okay, if we close that door, like, what's saying they can't take these other paths? And then there's, like, a million other paths. How do you model what all the various paths are and then prioritize them for the customer so that they can start. So, so it is like it on. is like chess. Like like yes. he said, it's yeah. it's like, you know, any chess game starts at one position and it ends at one position, but there's a long different varied path in the middle that could have a lot of different shapes, forms and and yeah, I like that. That's that's this is so this is one of the big the major uh, problems that commercial industry has faced when you when you look at red teams versus like military red teams where they're ongoing or even uh, APTs where you're simulating or emulating these particular threats. Uh, these are extended engagements. They've got, you know, not unlimited budget, but they've got extended time frames, extended things. They're, they're going after a lot of things. So we've always had the uh, return on investment and budget to contend with in the commercial space where we're trying to emulate a sophisticated adversary while doing it within a certain time frame or budget. And then trying to be as comprehensive as possible, but that is, you know, without a tool where we're wasting a lot of time setting up, getting initial access, handling uh, a lot of the various check marks and and comms. 
Uh, these are things that obviously Bryson, you're you're addressing in a lot of your platform here is eliminating a lot of the heavy lifting and work while still maintaining good OPSEC, good uh, good emulation, and then leaving the the surgical stuff and the comprehensive coverage to to the tool itself. But but also it's multi-dimensional. It's not just this attack was successful. It's at what point whether it was a, a success or failure was was I was I caught somewhere yeah. in the chain? Right. That's the other dimension and what's my dwell time do you test dwell time is that like a measurement that we can get from uh, yep. the product bryson we can get dwell time so you can actually do all the <laughs> metrics of response mm. when did the tool when did your technology first identify something when did the human analyst first identify that mm -hmm. that something was an anomaly and then how long did it take for you to identify the extent and understand what it was contain it and then remediate it all of those are metrics of response and resilience that we can give you. Because that, that's really important because, yeah. I mean, that determines whether you get caught, too. I mean, if you say, well, I can sit here for six weeks and figure this out, that's different than if you can do it in six minutes. Yep. Yeah. So, so that, I, just, I think that's it, very important. So back on the tradecraft thing, I just want to show something really quickly. I wasn't planning. Is my Does my screen share show up? Yes. yes. Okay. So here we've just – here's a – compromised host and a campaign. So we can see at a high level what host has been compromised, what's active, um, what's loaded and available on it, and then what was the heartbeat of the last time that the um, compromised host, the payload there, checked back in. So high level understanding. And then we can go in there and we can see who did what, where, what, when, and how, all there. Um, but then we have the ability for manual operations. So we can click and we now have emulated shell on box. And I use that phrase intentionally because let's say that this campaign's tradecraft was to talk through steganography, which is a module we have. You provide a directory of images. All of the traffic in C2 and data exfiltration is going to be embedded inside pictures that then goes through encrypted web traffic. Talk about really hard to find. Now, I'm not aware of any shell ability to talk shell to any box that allows you to do it through steganography. And you thought our memes were just funny, Bryson. <laughs> <laughs> they have a purpose. Uh, so here, what happens is the operator is presented with a shell that they're used to, to working with. But on the back end, all of the communications are, the server's going to translate those into the tradecraft protocol, communications protocol, consistent with that adversarial campaign the payloads on the far end are all going to then interpret that and then turn it back into like its shell action. So just an example of where we're maintaining consistency of APT tradecraft, but meanwhile presenting what looks like a shell to the operator. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, that's really nice. Um, something else to show real quick. So we're going to do scary security weekly APT, scary swapped. Um, so here's steganography, what I was talking about. We also include Google Sheets and Twitter. So you can use Google Sheets domains and Twitter with valid accounts. But we're going to keep it simple right now. Um, so I was talking about the ability to change things inside the... Now, can it change things on the fly? Can it go, uh, I was caught doing HTTPS, so I'm going to switch to some other exfiltration in C2 channel? Uh, that's coming on the roadmap. So you'll okay. be able to do alternate C2 channels. Mm -hmm. You can have different payloads from different campaigns work together. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also offer 
SMB for internal coordination between um, payloads as well. Nice. So there is kind of what you're talking about, yeah, but so not like, the complete yeah, failover if, communications. If I deploy multiple payloads, one of them is success using steganography, which I can imagine is wildly successful. Uh, the other ones kind of use that as a proxy. Yep. Yeah. So far, our, our steganography has never been caught. That doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing is when we're looking at emulation, um, I have yet to see anybody else do this, so please correct me if I'm wrong, but um, if you look at the way an actual APT works, they work in stages. Mm -hmm. I'm a stage zero beachhead. I can't do anything other more than land, feel safe, and then I'm going to call home and bring in something of interest. Like now I'm going to bring the crown jewels down because APTs don't want their good things to get burned, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So campaigns are not monolithic. Mm -hmm. So we have that same capability. What we're going to do is we're going to build a very basic Stage zero, we can see the logic here. We are going to introduce a delay, so we're going to wait 10 seconds after detonation. Um, pretty much all host defenses are defeated by just waiting after detonation. Sounds simple, but it really works. <laughs> and then we're going to start pulling down additional capabilities. So I want to see what's around me. I'm going to start a keylogger. Uh, what else do we want to do? Um, we want to persist so we survive reboot and Mimikatz to steal stuff. Um, so first thing we're going to do as soon as we land with the keylogger, we're going to start running that. Um, then we're going to do Mimikatz, and then we're going to do a uh, discovery. Um, also to demonstrate the marketplace. Um, so the way marketplace, I talked about how logos come with it. So here's Red Canary's Atomic Red Team. So... Um, different consultancies get to take the credit for the techniques and the modules that they create, and that'll be presented to the end users. So, okay, so we've just created a threat. Um, so I'm now going to download this quickly as well. So we'll see that pop up here. And then we'll actually see it go through the whole steps of bringing down the additional capabilities, turning itself into a stage one, because those modules are dynamically built on that compromised host's payload. Any now, second now. <laughs> you said those, those payloads are, are built based on the, uh, a dynamic keying. Can, are you setting that keying up when you're building the campaign, like, only fire if it has this domain or this particular user or this environment variable. Uh, is that a thing in that? Yes, you can do that. Okay. Bryson, can I just drop this whole thing into a virtual network and then and turn it loose, or is, uh, is it is it a pre-built scenario? Um, so we just built up a scenario. So you. At the end of the day, what you're doing is you're just creating um, just-in-time built um, payloads, like I said, XE, DLL, ELF, shellcode, and, and right. Mac, um, that you can deploy however you want. Okay. Um, Doug, you're looking so, for the window that says exploit, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking for the window. Uh, all right, there we go. So it's up. What's it doing? All right, so it, here you can go. You can see it pulled down these additional capabilities. And then it started running. Uh, something failed. Oh, all right. 
Oh, sorry. This is my ransom demo. This is the wrong one. What do they call it? Scary swapped. There scary swapped. Yeah, scary swapped. Okay. Well, I don't. I don't. This is the disadvantage of doing the live demo right now. My malware is not executing. What's that? It seems underwhelming. <laughs> it's very stealthy. It's so stealthy you can't even tell. <laughs> Damn, you're good. Well, eh. You know, all right. Well, anyway, assuming that works, you would it's you would see this, long. and then you would actually see all those pieces coming out. So I'm uh, one for two. It's okay. You're doing okay. live demos. Yeah. <laughs> Switch back to handsome Bryson hey. Gort. <laughs> and Frank. all is well. Doesn't matter if it worked or not. We switched back to Bryson. <laughs> now, do, the, do all the, uh, the dynamic stuff that you're building in there where you're adding different capabilities and you know, dragging and dropping and then you're going to have the marketplace... Uh, are those, without releasing to the marketplace, are you going to have a private repository and be able to have some of those customizable by the user? Obviously, that would be without access to source code, right? You have uh, certain limitations. So is that cu customizable? So first, uh, we give partners access to source code. Um, so that's, that's not an issue. Um, and then second, um, Certainly, um, on-premise servers are a deployment model. So we do SaaS or on-premise. The on-premise allows you to build your own custom arsenal that nobody else can see. That's awesome. Yeah, so conceivably, you could have customer, a red team, I have customer. They're like, hey, I want you to do some custom stuff. And we're like, hey, use Scythe. We'll build custom modules for you, and then you can simulate yep. our, our attacks. Yep. Maybe we did an adversary simulation yep. that lasted six That's months, and they're awesome. like, I need to be able to like run this stuff you know, ad hoc right. to make sure that I'm putting in the right defenses. That, that makes perfect sense. Now, yeah, now is and that uh, red teams can do that without uh, even going to the marketplace if they wanted to have their own private exchange of those kinds of modules. I can see certain customers wanting that, right? I'm awesome. uh, familiar with the <laughs> <laughs> That's now, awesome. uh, is that is that the same for C C two channels? Is that going to be uh, a module and or yep. marketplace? Okay. Yeah. So C two channels and capabilities are the the two modules. Um, threats are where you have predefined the the specifications of communications and capabilities, and then the actions of what they do. Those are the threats that go in the threat catalog. Um, those are essentially we call those uh, WordPress for malware. It takes you know. Uh, 15 to 30 <laughs> minutes to just make sure that the logic is doing exactly what you want it to do. Um, and you've now effectively emulated a, a real world threat. Um, and then the third option is there are, we are aware of at least one consultancy that wants to provide um, a separate um, PE that does transforms off of Scythe payloads. So that's a third thing that's going to be available in the marketplace is those kinds of things that, um, does different things to uh, the uh, what what Scythe creates, so that there are different capabilities for um, more interesting on-hosts um, options. Well, different behaviors and signatures, which I mean, because inevitably some endpoint is a vendor, right, is going to pick up on this, whether yep. on accident or on purpose or. Whatever, right? <laughs> on purpose, Paul. <laughs> they do it on purpose. I'm trying to be like politically correct here, but you know what I'm saying. But if you've got that transform, right, that's basically transforming the code on the fly, yep. uh, it, it makes that almost uh, obsolete and irrelevant. Yep. So we have one of the best in the business. You all know and love them, um, but I can't tell you who uh, who's uh, going to be offering that. It's awesome. Oh. Love it. I like I it. 
I had a question about the bounty stuff. You mentioned that you were going to have the opportunity for uh, to, to, to you know for folks to develop a solution, and you don't have to, for a bounty for whatever money. And I started thinking about Doug's education piece and how you know the product does so many things, and there are interesting solutions that could be added. It'd be an interesting classroom exercise, and if the instructor had the answer as well, it might be a very interesting scenario to act on. Or am I way out in left field? I'm I'm not following with the the bounty and the. Well, so let's say they say we need we need we need side to do this really cool thing, and somebody develops it. Mm-hmm. That could also be some an educational opportunity for uh, say a class Doug had if he had your if he could get the answer as well. Goes goes back in the marketplace and then uh, you know if the instructor actually has the answer you could give it as an assignment and sort of ah. re- you know reiterate the whole problem mm-hmm. and say here was something that really happened. See if you can see if you can beat it as well, and and you know that would be a really cool thing to be able to do. That's a really neat idea. We hadn't thought of yeah. that. Yeah, from like both the attack and defense. Like yeah. you said, yeah. Doug, you take it, you put it in a virtual lab, you get some students, right. and you you hope that the right best and brightest students are coming up with really innovative defense yeah. and attack scenarios. In that, the attacks get into the marketplace. The defenses hopefully get publicized, or maybe not, um, or maybe to a subset, right? I mean, again, it's discretion. I mean, you would have people lined up wanting to take that class right now if you if you advertised that on campus and said, you know, here it is. It's a challenge. It's the the whole class. Like I I love to do practical classes, and if you just said here here's a series of challenges, complete them all, and you pass. You know, this this is yeah. you know then it then it turns into these right. older models that used to exist like third pig and some of those things that we used to use for classes and using tools like that really trains people well i mean they're going to learn the tools that they're going to use tomorrow i like bringing that innovation you know i mentioned i was reading the stephen levy book about about hackers and before the days of the internet when manuals were scarce and that's what you had to learn literally hacking and the best and the brightest went on to work for companies and teach at the university and all that kinds of stuff and this is fostering a similar kind of it is environment which really pushing the the edge i, of, I really like it but not technology. to mention it brings those it brings them right into the fold of, yeah. of of what's going on and i think that's very that's very cool and that's that attracts student the, the good students of, of cybersecurity. right right that's um, the people that you want to hire yes exactly that's what i was thinking exactly i've met some instructors out here who part of the problem is coming up with real world actionable as you're saying uh, relevant content, as well as a platform to deliver the cool idea we have, you know, when we're sitting around drinking a beer thinking of what would be great to teach the students. How do you actually do it? I mean, just... No, I mean, that, this that, is that like stuff takes a empowering. great... It takes a great deal of time to build simula- simulations for mm-hmm. class, because you, one, have to think it up, then you have to actually do it. Build it. Then yeah. you have to build it. Then you have to sort of work backwards. It's like writing a, a mystery novel. Then you have to work right. backwards the beginning of it and write the case. But if you had these things that, that pre-existed and you know what the solution is, you can start there to build your class and say, I'm going to pick these 12 things out of this, all these, this marketplace of things that have been done. So I think making those things available is great. Once they've been solved yeah. and people have been paid for them. I mean, there is an ethics issue there. Uh, you know, people always get nervous about that. Like you're revealing, you know, these really dangerous things to, to students. And we get that all the time. They're like, you're going to teach a pen testing class. Like, you're going to teach them to break into stuff? Well, I don't know. Like, no, not, nothing you have. No, not, not at all. Cam- <laughs> campus, campus would never be compromised by this. Mm. <laughs> no. We don't use WinRM. Campus is an elastic bubble. It can't be compromised. <laughs> it's not WinRM domain admin shares anywhere. <laughs> no. 
No, that, that, Ever. that's totally fake news. Yeah, all made up. Uh, so, Bryson, if, if folks want to learn more and uh, get a, a trial of the software, uh, obviously speak to your team first before doing so and register. They can go to securityweekly.com forward slash scythe. Um, and then the marketplace, what's the, the rough time frame uh, that you were mentioning for that? We are going to uh, and we're going to formally announce with a number of partners at uh, RSA in February. Sweet, that's awesome. Excellent, that's awesome. Awesome. And some of those other roadmap features are in the similar kind of time frame, right? Like you mentioned. Uh, like I said, they're going to be available in I, January. Price and I, <laughs> not January. I get it. Believe me. Did you Believe not read me, the pamphlets? I, I totally understand that from multiple so perspectives. Tell everybody, come read look the pamphlet. For Bryson there it is, right there. February. <laughs> so yeah, uh, marketplace will be in uh, February. We'll be we'll be launching it. Um, and then uh, the Turing Complete uh, platform with virtual file system, uh, most likely that'll be February-ish. Sure. Fantastic. Bryson, thank you so much for coming yeah. back on Paul Security Weekly. <laughs> and with that, we will take a short break. Come back with the security news for this week. Stay tuned. Effectively securing your organization and its reputation requires a smarter approach. To maximize efficiency and minimize risk, security experts turn to Logarithm, the only leading solution built solely for security teams by a security team committed to your success. With NextGen SIM, user and entity behavior analytics, network traffic and behavior analysis, security automation and orchestration, and compliance, Logarithm provides security made smarter. Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash BHIS to join their mailing list and view the latest blogs and webcasts from Black Hills Information Security. The biggest problem in security that remains unsolved is unprotected attack paths that allow threats to compromise vulnerable targets in the cloud and data center. But traditional micro-segmentation is too complex and time-consuming. There's a better approach. Edgewise Zero Trust Auto Segmentation. Edgewise is impossibly simple micro-segmentation, delivering results immediately with a security outcome that's provable and management that's zero touch. Driven by machine learning, Edgewise automatically builds policies that protect any application in any cloud without any changes to your network. They provide measurable improvement by quantifying attack path risk reduction and verifying software identity before it communicates to stop application compromises and data breaches. To see how to eliminate your network attack surface, visit securityweekly.com forward slash edgewise. Welcome back everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. I, Paul, will be providing insi his insights, that's what the teleprompter says, <laughs> and predictions in the information and cybersecurity space at the local ISC Squared Rhode Island chapter meeting this Monday, coming Monday, November 18th at Greg's Restaurant in Providence. Doug, you going to be there? Should uh, be there. Actually, no, I have class that night. Oh. Can't you get like a grad student? Anyway. If you would like to join us, go to securityweekly.com forward slash ISC2RI. That's right. Oh, look at that. It's a map of Rhode Island and everything. Yay. Yeah. It's because it fits on the screen. So. Yeah. So <laughs> Anywho, uh, I hope to see everyone there on Monday night. It's going to be fun. 
Yeah, you should come. I mean, ISD Square is a good organization. Yeah, Island, I like to, I like present to local events. Yeah, yeah. it's had it's a lot fun. of growth in that. Uh, in, in the, it's just been there for like a, a year or less. Yeah, because the there's ISSA, there's Isaka, and then there's Patrick Laverty's, which is like right. the rest of the yeah <laughs> the groups in Rhode exactly. Island. So, but the ISC Square one, I think, is kind of new. Yeah, it's good. Good stuff. Alrighty, gentlemen, are we ready to tackle the story? Where did you want to start for the stories of this week? At yours, because you got the most. All right, let's start at the top. <laughs> um, I wanted to start because Doug, you said you attended a meeting. Uh, Mitre Foundation aims at boosting critical infrastructure. Uh, they've announced the launch of a tech foundation focused on strengthening critical infrastructure through partnerships with the private sector. And by partnerships, they mean people that pay them to be part of the yeah the they're thing. Like, Is they're that like asking large companies to join Mitre, mm-hmm. and I guess the deal is they re- they give you access to findings and reports a little sooner than the general public gets. I mean, they're still a nonprofit, so right. But they're asking. They have to, to monetize some somehow. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think you know they get levels of funding, right? But right. Mitre's done. I, and say what you will about that. We're just trying to. Lay it all out for our audience, right? Mitre's doing great work. They are. They, they, do they ton- always have. They do to tons be, yeah. of stuff. They produce massive numbers of reports. I mean, they have a huge organization. They have thousands of people working on these problems. And it was mostly government funded, you know, initially. Right. And and they have a huge center. But, they're yeah, they're always doing cool stuff. And it's it's interesting to keep up with what they're doing. And uh, if I could afford it, I'd be a partner. But, you know. The Center for Threat-Informed Defense is a privately funded research and development organization conducts applied research and advanced development in an attempt to advance cyber defense at scale worldwide. Yeah, so they're they're continuing <coughs> to produce stuff, you know, like attack and and uh, Caldera and things like that. And that CBE are, is one of the things that comes out of Mitre, yeah, of course, and, and right? Yeah. So. Give people uh, insight and I don't know if they're going to do like custom tests and things but they may well for partners and, you know, and whatever, but uh, like like uh, Bryson was saying on the earlier segment, you know, they they will put together like attack matrices for you and things like that. So I'm presuming all that's sort of embedded in this new mm-hmm. initiative that they're trying to do going forward. They're just trying to main, you know, create a, a monetized, stable, permanent operation because government funding is always going to be fleeting. I mean, yeah. it, it's you know, it's 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 the idea of the government funding of anything was to get it started. It's like right. seed money, right. yeah. And you're supposed to figure out how to monetize it because if you can't, it probably shouldn't persist. You know, I mean, you, yeah, that's if a good you point. Have to be yeah. propped up permanently then maybe you're not valid. So Well, you're not providing enough value. Eventually, right. you're going to be funded to create value that the private sector is going to pay mean, for that. Everybody and, lo- and I think Mitre has reached that point. Yeah, no, yeah. they have. I mean, everybody loves free stuff, but, you know, I mean, at, at some point, they have to sort of leave the nest and, and, yeah. and become like an entity, and, and that will make them stronger if they, you know. Agreed. They can- Agreed. I, I think they've reached that point as well. I mean, yeah. it, you know, and good <laughs> for them, right? I mean, it's, it, in the, some of the quality – Material they're putting out is, is just amazing. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm all for it. Yep. I think it's a great idea, and I, I think that's how they move forward and become a, a permanent kind of component. Of and, the, it, of and it help companies that detect breaches after years or only after the hacker, and, and I hate the way the media uses that term today, but I think we're stuck with it. The hacker maxed out the server storage. My comment was, they need better visibility into their indicators of compromise as disk space too low is kind of a slow way of an indicator of compromise. (laughs) 
I think um, the horse is already bolted. <laughs> yeah. They discovered the breach on March 7, 2016, when they began receiving alerts that one of its servers had reached its maximum capacity, which was due to a massive data archive file that the hacker created on its customers. And I laugh, but this actually is part of a data breach now. Uh, surprisingly, the intruder managed to breach the company at, at least at least two more times, even after InfoTrack Systems, which is the company that was breached, became aware of the intrusion. I, I mean, you have to understand <coughs> that, that a lot of the, I mean, I did a case like this years and years ago, like maybe in like 2002 or something, and they had this very similar problem. They weren't stealing data. They were using the, the company's systems to yes. store porn. It was part of this That thing. was common back then. It was called Pornster. Yeah, and, and so it was just somebody had cracked in. But, I mean, a lot of companies have capabilities, but they don't have any kind of security organizations at all. And they may have somebody who can keep the system running, like the one I did was like that. They had a database person, and he was, you know, he was good at database. He didn't know anything about security, and he was just an engineer-type person, and you know, he knew how to set up the database. And, and he, kept, he called to call the police, who didn't know what to do, who called me, because they were saying, we don't understand why the drives keep filling up. Right. And he didn't really know enough about all that stuff to understand what was going on. And then he said, you know, I tried to stop what, these people from logging in, and then they just log in again. And they didn't have any security organization at all and or any idea how to contact one. So you see, you still see that. I mean, you see that all the time with companies, even midsize and sometimes bigger companies. They have an IT infrastructure. They have a data infrastructure, but they don't have a security organization. And, you know, it, the security organization is some guy named Chet down in marketing who, you know, got stuck with that job because they didn't know what else to do. So they named him that for the audit. Isn't Chet the brother in Weird Science? Weird yeah, Science? I think so. Yeah. Yes. Weird no, you, you, you guys actually yeah. reminded me of something that I do as a pen tester actively. And you, you're probably going to laugh a little, but but it's actually not funny. Um, th there's a tool called NTDSUtil that you can use to extract a copy of the Active Directory database mm -hmm. uh, if you're interested in, in, in pulling that data offline. Well, Active Directory databases tend to be fairly large, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're sizable. And so I actually literally, and I think this is actually good practice – I check how much disk space is available yeah. on the domain controller before I hit that because if I hit that and I exhaust the disk, yeah, you're caught. They're gonna catch yeah. me. Yep. Well, <laughs> right? maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe they're just going. I don't know. Our drives are all full. Empty your recycle bin. Yeah. Well, maybe, <laughs> but I, I kind of assumed that they will. So I actually always have this habit of going. Wait a minute. This AD database might be pretty big. Let me check how much disk space. Because some people are pretty tight on their disk space. They yes, they, they allocate are. right if these things are VMs or or uh, sitting out in the cloud somewhere. So I'm like, let me check first before I do and it, this. And a domain controller doesn't, in in your case, job right doesn't need a whole ton of disk space if it's storing logs. No, it really doesn't. Right? Uh, right? It's not it's not a data storage kind of it's, thing. Like hey, yeah, you're storing the well, user I mean, it, file. It, 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 there, it right? is. You got to remember that ntds.dead is sure. actually a database file that, that can right. grow pretty large and pretty pretty. If you have a lot of users, yeah. But even but, then, uh, when when you're using ntds dot uh, NTD, uh, what you're doing is creating a replica copy on the right. disk. So you're doubling. I mean, you're doubling the yeah, largest so file on the system, yep. right? Yeah. yeah so. and, exactly. a lot of, and a lot so, of times uh, they run they run that file is running on the local disk rather than like on a RAID or a NAS. So they often have a lot less disk space right. on that disk. They want yes. the fastest disk they got, so they're running on that local system disk, and that yeah, that'll be the smallest disk out there. Right. 
Right, right. And now, now the alternative is, of, uh, you know, throwing in some pen testing here is if they have a recent volume shadow copy, uh, then just go ahead and take the uh, mm-hmm. uh, take the same system and uh, ntds.dit right off this volume shadow copy. And well, don't worry about it. All this loops around to you. You ought to understand the baseline of your your environment. I mean, if you're a security operative, you ought to understand what your network looks like, and you ought to know. Wow, look at this file. It just doubled in size. You know, so mm-hmm. something's going on when you don't have those people or they don't know what they're doing, then Joff doubles your file size and you go, I don't know, the disk is full, we'll order a new one or we'll put it in next year's budget. In the meantime, empty your recycle bins. I mean, I've literally seen stuff like that mm-hmm. and they don't even it, investigate it. So a couple comments after Lee. Yeah, go, uh, you first, well, Lee. I was going to just jump on to what Doug was saying and that based on what they got, they clearly didn't know what was on the system. Yep. And I was expecting you to jump in when on the part where they're talking about they, they harvested 2,300 full credit cards, names, CCV numbers, addresses. It's like, what the hell were they thinking? Why is that stuff still there? And they probably didn't know it was there. They didn't know the disk was full. <laughs> yeah, they didn't know it was there. <laughs> well, so so a couple comments. Uh, you know, A, or my first comment is you know the the article is like this is the latest example and yet it, it, it's it's an article talking about something that happened over three and a half years ago uh you know what what made it reportable was they've reached a settlement with the ftc mm-hmm. uh and the ftc settlement is something i'm familiar with because of my years being the qsa at the tgx companies um from what i can tell and i clicked through and i was reading through the settlement i I don't see that they're getting any kind of fines. It doesn't mean that they haven't paid fines already and weren't sued by customers and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, they got they're getting off kind of easy uh, in terms of the volume of credit cards. If the you know, again, I, I'm on this theme of compliance. Why is that? Oh, I've got a security and compliance weekly show now. Uh, you know, yes, th- they all need to do the things that Doug described, but. Companies don't do that unless they have to. And in this company, if all they had was PCI data, you know, credit card data, and 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 what was stolen, which should have been everything, but it was only a few thousand, it means they were a small merchant. It means they didn't have a third-party assessor coming in and, and evaluating their security program. They were self-assessing. So, uh, you know... This is a very common instance for a, a lot of small companies. There's a lot of things that they should be doing, but security isn't telling them to do that because there isn't security there. There's an IT department, and somebody every once in a while puts on the hat of security when they have to go you know, jumpstart the firewall or something like that. Well, I, com- so, I completely agree with Jeff about that, but the problem is, is I don't know how that legislation gets passed because every time they bring this up, these same companies are screaming bloody murder because they say if you do this, it'll bankrupt us. You're going to require us. It's just like Sarbanes and HIPAA mm-hmm. and everything else. There's a lot of pushback against that kind of legislation. And business, especially small and medium-sized businesses start saying, You're, we're going to have to hire how many people in order to do this? And, and I, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. But, I, I want but a lot it, of but times that, that doesn't matter, whether it's the government or a big company that's putting other companies out of business, Doug. And so I'll give you two examples. One in the state of Rhode Island, right? The recent, would you call it temporary legislation they were able to pass against the uh, uh, fruit flavored vape 
Oh yeah, and it was appealed. Uh, they brought it to a, a judge, actually, the vaping companies, and said it was impacting our business. And the judge upheld the Rhode Island law, temporary. I don't know if you call it a it's law, a, but it was an executive order by an the ex- governor. An executive yeah. order by the governor. Uh, the, the, and they upheld that, even though the evidence that they had to support that executive order was completely unfounded. Right. And they were in the way wrong direction. Yeah. We found out later, right? Uh, and some speculate that they knew that beforehand, but. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll get into that on Politics Security Weekly. <laughs> coming soon. <laughs> We're coming soon to a show. But uh, the other example ties into another story with YouTube where a personal experience, we've experienced this at, at Security Weekly uh, on numerous fronts with multiple big, you know, the big companies. Were, uh, Apple, fortunately, podcasts, cool, for the most part, cool, though some, I mean, I think you really got to be... Uh, uh, a controversial, uh, I don't know. You, you got to be way out there for Apple to, to yank your podcast, all right? And that's that's happened certainly, uh, but it's few and far between, right? Facebook has guidelines that they've enforced that we've had to work specifically with the cigar and tobacco thing. Even though we don't sell tobacco, we're just doing a podcast on cigars. We we limited yeah. can't do certain things, and then we you know it's not even worth it to use Facebook at a certain point. Then you go to YouTube. And you look at our experiences with simple things like legitimately applying for more quota on YouTube and the process being very undefined uh, and very arbitrary where they can, yeah, basically for if they feel like it or not, be like, yeah, you know what, you get more quota and yeah, you know what, you don't. And it's not like in Rhode Island where you can you know, slip someone an envelope full of money and get a license for something or more quota, right? Sure, that never happens. That never <laughs> happens, right? Uh, and, but there's big companies, like, that doesn't happen, so you're left with no recourse. We've had our channels removed, not removed, disabled temporarily multiple times from YouTube back in the day. And then there's this whole thing that's happening now that some of the... Pre- I, I, and I think this this article's wrong. I don't know, where, where does this come from? <laughs> Uh, Sophos Naked Security is saying, no, YouTube isn't planning to jettison your unprofitable channel, which I think is uh, all right. So I don't have evidence that based on the profitability of a channel, YouTube has said we're banning you from the platform. Okay, I don't have that evidence. However, when I look at the changes they've made to their terms of service, it's pretty clear that they want the least specific language possible to say your channel's gone. Yeah, now, so I'd argue they had that before. It just says right? it's no longer commercially viable. And I mean... What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. It means they can use any metric they want to use and they can right. say, this didn't sell ads. This took up too much disk space. This had too many downloads. They can use it any way they want. Any way they want. I mean, it's their company though. I mean, you have to remember, it's, it's not a it's public true. service. It's not the public library. YouTube is a private company. They make money. But let's go back to your example with legislation. If my company's income is based on my YouTube channel, which, mm-hmm. again, not a great business model, just throwing that out there, but there are lots of people who have made a living on YouTube ads and promoting their yeah, I channel. I gave one 10 bucks out there in the parking lot. Right? The way like for, you know, for better or for worse. We'll podcast for food. YouTube, can, they're not a government entity, no, right? They're but they're the provider. They can basically arbitrarily say, yeah, you know what? You're done. Yeah. And, and based on absolutely nothing. And I, 
That's kind of scary. But they've always been able to do that. They can, yeah, they, they can change these rules anytime they want. There's no losses. They can't pass a policy and say, now only only channels that support the current administration can be aired. I mean, and they can do whatever they want. And that's scary. To me, that's scarier than government le- legislation and regulations that don't make any sense, right? Is, is that now that these. It is happening already, Tyler. You're absolutely. I mean, going back to my cigar example with Facebook, they've taken a stance on tobacco. We're not violating any laws, right? No. Nope. And we're even willing to say, look, you've got to check a box. If we're going to send you samples, you have to, you know, show proof of age in not just your state, not just your city, but your town that you're of legal smoking age, and you know, we'll send you a free sample. We'll uh, go by the law to the letter. That doesn't matter. Facebook has come up with a policy that says these are the confines you must work in if we think they your content is of a certain type. They can change that policy tomorrow. And then they can change that policy tomorrow. They can tomorrow. say, right. you know, you can't have cat memes uh, because because uh, Zuck doesn't like it, and it's a policy and tough. And if you don't want to do it, you can use some other platform. You know, I mean, right. you, mm-hmm. I mean, and so that's what YouTube's doing, and they're saying you don't like. And I mean, you know, it's like basically then they give this marketing release of we made some changes to make things easier for you and to make sure you understand our very nebulous legalese. And you know, I mean, this makes it simple for you. And if you have any questions, uh, just just don't don't call. Thanks. Well, I and I call one eight hundred. I care. Yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of this is in response to <laughs> government legislation. Uh, on YouTube for the way they treat channels that are geared towards children or not. They were in violation of COPA uh, Mm -hmm. and have actually every single YouTube channel now, you have to go in and select that either my channel or I'm going to go video by video, this content is appropriate for children or it's not. And from what I found, that language is very, very clear. Largely because there's government scrutiny now yeah. <laughs> on YouTube. Well, that's the what they're afraid of, though, because so yes. if you go back to like the utility wars and the phone mm-hmm. company wars, what happened was the government was starting to look at phone companies and go, we want you to do this. And the phone company said, bite me. Mm-hmm. You know, we're the phone company. We'll do whatever the hell we want. You know, I'm, and, and the government said, okay, we're, we're going to break you up. We're not going to let you. You're a monopoly. And so if, if it becomes a case where somebody can claim YouTube is a monopoly, then people can start suing them and saying there right. is no competition. Right. I don't have a way to make a living outside of YouTube. And there's hey, no other we're just going to host our videos on Pornhub. Yeah, but then the government gets involved, and then you are well and truly screwed mm. because then they step in and regulate you, like you know, with their thumb on it, and go, right. you know, the new department of video content will be deciding what you see and what you don't see, and good luck with that. Sorry, yeah, I, I, comments. I don't think I don't think customers or even companies being told what to do, right, for whether it be compliance or regulation. Uh, at the end of the day, the company is there to make money. That's yep. what we're all there to do. And so it, it has to directly affect their their bottom line in some way. And I think we have to get away from this forcing, you know, the government tries to force us all to do things that we don't like. We don't like to pay taxes, and we still kind of do. However, it doesn't it doesn't incentivize that. I think Wait, what do you mean kind of do? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Oops, uh, we'll, t- we'll talk after the show, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we do, and trust me, I pay a fuck ton of them. <laughs> but it, I but pay my taxes kind of because I use Monopoly money. <laughs> that's, that's true, that's true. So to incentivize that, though, you really need something like, I think, 
uh, almost like we have with consumers, right? Like the, the, co the companies themselves are leveraging our credit score and our reliability as far as an individual. Well, from a consumer standpoint, we need to get to the point where we're holding these companies liable and we're giving them a credit rating. Similar to like you go to a restaurant and you have an A or B plus, that determines whether or not you want to go eat there, right? So having that security metric or that, um, that grading of these companies and how they do security and how they handle data, how they uh, look at our privacy, I think once we get to that point and <laughs> consumers are informed enough to look at these metrics and use that and make an educated guess, I think that's when it's going to start changing a little bit. Right. You know, but, the only to... way to get a security rating is to have a compliance program. That may, that may be the first step. But that's assuming that we have a choice. If you're going to host content that is of a type of video, you're going to put it on YouTube. I mean, where else are you going to put it where it's going to get views, right? That's the, I mean, back to Doug's no, point of the, I mean, the monopoly. Then, it's, then right? it's a monopoly, and then the government can theoretically get involved in that in a, under antitrust law that exists and say this is the only. Which Bill Gates says the antitrust legislation against Microsoft. Did you, I don't know if I covered the story. I want to hear yeah. since you mentioned antitrust, was the reason that he was and others at Microsoft so distracted that they lost in the mobile marketplace. And if it wasn't for antitrust, we'd all be running Windows phones instead of Android. Well, that's what he says. And I mean, every, every company I've ever dealt with hates antitrust laws because everybody wants to be a monopoly. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I mean, I mean if you go back to Tyler's point, if your goal is to make money, you want to be a monopoly. Yeah. And I mean, if Bill Gates <laughs> can get his hands on every single thing, you bet we'd be running Microsoft phones because right. we wouldn't have a choice. Mm -hmm. It'd be like, yes, you will run this or you won't. You, you have to set up your own cellular network because it's the only thing supported. So that's why antitrust there'd laws be a bill. There'd be a line item on your cell phone bill and it would be a license fee. For Windows Mobile, and it would be all Microsoft products, and you'd be using <laughs> Outlook, and you'd be using, you know, Gates app and and Gate Tube and and, and uh, yeah. Wow! Wow! Yeah, that that undermines capitalism, though, right? Like, that is capitalism. It is. <laughs> if you got the <laughs> best mouse trap, those catch two all comments were classic. That was <laughs> that was awesome. All right, I'm gonna. I want to uh, talk hey. about. I want. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, my story number two are our friends at Coal Fire that got arrested. Apparently, they're still oh, facing no. criminal <laughs> charges. Are you serious? <laughs> yep. You're gonna bring you're gonna bring this one up. Oh. <laughs> I mean, that's yes. just yes, an, an injustice of our justice system, in my opinion. <laughs> no. All right. Someone else. Hundred percent. Okay. Like this is this is gonna have a lot of people upset though watching this video. Because, I mean, I mean I, we, I, we've we always said, and at least I've always said, I want to speak for everyone else, but I've always said the difference when we teach those coming up in our field, when we teach students like Doug and others, right, the difference between ethical hacker, not ethical hacker, the difference between being a criminal and being a good hacker, right, is permission. And you have to show permission. If you have permission, you're helping that company be more secure. I've always said, it, even in the context of working within your own company, right? There was the the Pearl guy was one of the first cases, right? Where oh, yeah. internally, mm -hmm. yep. I forget his name. Uh, it'll come to me. Someone else will think of it. But have permission, whether you're working for that company, whether you're contracting for that company, you've got permission. We... Uh, call it your permission slip like we used to in grade school to go to the bathroom right it's your permission slip that's what separates you from legal action and violating the law and helping that company under a contract 
how we how, how are we how is the gray area in this the, right permission or that's, not that's the problem like i i've used to work in a lot of state and local government and i've worked with tons of sheriffs uh you know former and present and the election and the politics that happen with inside of state and county government and the mm -hmm. battles like this is this is actually a fairly small battle this is a a political thing that just happened to hit uh, news and highlights there's there's big there's this happens all the time and so really there's zero from what i can see and i'm no lawyer but we do have uh, an article com article coming out uh, where we've evaluated the law around this and and a bunch of lawyers have looked at it and there's it's pretty cut and dry there's a contract uh with inside of what they were doing that everything was t was crossed the i was dotted mm -hmm. this is 100 percent political uh, political waves to bring up something where someone's feelings got hurt and it's right. going it's going to affect all of us though and we're already hearing about companies that are wanting to take physical off of the table and not look at that as a vector of attack you know what this reminds me of tyler is you ever see the movie porkies oh God. right where he's like you got a broken <laughs> headlight right and then he smashes the headlight <laughs> like yeah. this is what we're dealing with right now that was a hundred percent. That's, yeah. I mean, you got to think of it in that context. And if people would understand the dynamics of politics with inside of state and local governments, especially and, sher sheriffs in a courthouse. And, and this has always yeah. been a razor's edge. I mean, I mean, if you go back into the eighties, you saw people breaking into things and then reporting it to the company. And, and initially that was sort of cool. And you call them and say, you know, I got into your system through this mm -hmm. dial up modem or whatever. And they go, wow. Okay, great. We'll look at that. And all of a sudden, people were calling them, and they're going, yeah, we're calling the police, and you're going to be in jail for exploiting this, even though you didn't do anything. Today, I think there's a lot of sort of, A, politics around it. If if constituents are calling in and complaining, or big businesses are mm -hmm. calling in to the sheriff and complaining and saying, this has got to stop, and that person you know, wants to keep getting campaign donations and whatever. But, I mean, but it's astounding to us because I, as hackers, right, and, and we've worked in information security and done pen tests, this is a precedent that we've set within our community. Maybe this is the opportunity to um, vocalize this and disseminate it outside of our smaller community, right? Because we had, what was uh, Nickerson's show that they did where they stole the car, right? Tiger like, teams. Tiger team. They legit stole the car, right? No one got arrested. And, and that was years ago. We've set the precedent that we can do things in an ethical manner to help the businesses be more secure. Uh, and like, how did this go awry where uh, people aren't like latching on to the idea that yes, people with permission can well, do this? Well, I mean, let me compare it to forensics. So, so there was this whole controversy about forensics quite a while ago. Mm -hmm where certain states started saying, if you do forensics, you, need in you a, have to have uh, a PI private, license. Yes. And in Rhode Island, to get your PI license, you have to do an apprenticeship. No, 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 no. It used to be you had to. I have to, a PI license in Rhode Island. Because you got an envelope full of money and you... <laughs> no, Rhode Island decide. I took the... No. <laughs> I swear, it didn't happen that way. It wasn't an envelope. <laughs> it was a check. It was a Bitcoin. Mail. Yeah, it was Bitcoin. It's a really big check. But no, I mean, it was. But that thing came about, and all of a sudden they were saying you're going to be arrested. Right. So I mean, I actually went to a meeting in North Carolina, and I went to a meeting in Massachusetts, mm -hmm. and I went to a meeting in Texas 
with these PI boards. And these PI boards were controlled by local politicians mm-hmm. whose brother-in-law was the head of the PI committee. And this guy in North Carolina just looked me right in the eye and he said, you come down here and do that stuff, son, you're going to jail. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why? I mean, because I'm doing something legal to support a lawsuit. And he goes, I don't care. He was like, you come down here and do that, you're going to prison. And I was like, and I mean, so there's a lot of this stuff is like one misinformation. So they were hackers. All general constituents here is hackers. Mm-hmm. They don't know what that means. They don't know what's going on. And, the, and somebody calls a local politician and says, hey, I want these guys in jail and I want them in jail today. And they go out and arrest them and they charge them with, you know, crimes against nature or whatever. And, mm-hmm. uh, and your headlights busted. Okay, you're going right. to jail. And those things vary so wildly from one place to another and mm-hmm. from time to time. A lot of it's misinformation. They'll probably beat this charge in, in court. I'm not a lawyer either, and I, ha- I haven't studied this case. But, I mean, a lot of these things are just, you know, it got a big headline, and it'll go. But it, it is dangerous because if suddenly states go, wow, pen testing is a violation of all that's holy, and they say everybody's going to jail that does pen tests, and you have to have special licensing, and you have to have a PI license. They talked about that for pen testers too. you got to have a PI license license or be being supervised by a PI at all times. Mm. So if I went and did a forensics case in Massachusetts, even though I had a PI license in Rhode Island, I had to hire a local PI at great expense to go sit at a diner while I did my forensics case. And then he'd go, you done yet? I'm like, not yet. And he's like, call me when you're finished. So, Mm. I mean, all this is just a lot of it is the, is the, the legal side of the world, trying to catch up with the tech side. We understand this stuff, but a lot of times people don't. Local politicians have no idea what this means, and they get some guy that gets all incensed about it, and they call in and get all worried, and they say, we're going to do something about it. But, Doug, Doug, uh, in this particular instance, and this article doesn't have a lot of detail. There were were several other articles that that came out today. You know, this isn't a, a, a technology test. This was the physical security I test. Understand. From, from what I can tell, uh, there wasn't a clear understanding of rules of engagement or yeah. there wasn't a clear understanding of, well, we hired a bunch of pen testers. What are they doing trying to break into the back door of whatever building it was that they got caught? So, yes, it's miscommunication, misunderstanding, and and it, it – uh, it's silly that it's they're still facing charges. I, I completely I, I can just I com- imagine the the politics. I completely agree. It. I mean, and and we always tell our students, look, you have got to have a scope document. You have to have a scoping document. If you start exceeding that, and that, and for when I taught forensics all the time. You had to have a scope document. You needed to have an attorney reviewing those scoping documents. And if you're if you're going to go out there and operate without a net, good luck because oh. I didn't want to do it. That's that's the big problem with this though is they have they have all the documentation. There's a, there's a really clear uh, understanding on scope. Everybody that was involved signed up all the way to the very top. The the lawyers for both parties reviewed it uh, even at the state level, um, and so literally everything is is covered here, even down to what tests they were going to be running against the bill. Well, no, that's why I'm saying they're going to beat it. I mean, I, I don't think they're going to get. I don't convicted. know. Like that's the that's eh. the problem is they've already they've already dropped the charges once, and this is this is uh this is old. This has been going. No, on I know, and I mean it makes months, their life so. suck, but I think in the end you probably win that case because you got all your ducks in a row. I mean, that, but I mean it doesn't mean things don't suck in the meantime, and you're you're sitting there in jail and you're not working and or you're sitting at home under indictment or whatever. So yeah, it sucks. 
but it, it, we've seen it over and over again in this field. And I mean, I saw it in forensics and there were people being arrested. There were people being, you know, having their business licenses revoked and all kinds of stuff. Just, you know, a lot of it was just politics and misinformation. So it's unfortunate. So it's, a good, it's a good platform and a good time. Like, well, it's in the limelight to, I think, really get the appropriate message out there. Uh, people like Dave Kennedy are coming out and, and coming on news, dropping articles, uh, the coal fire CEO has done some really good articles explaining a lot of it and being very uh, forthcoming and political. Uh, so I think it's a good platform if it's used well and companies actually get the message out. Yeah, That's, I agree. But, I mean, to Doug's point, it, at the extreme, it could mean that pen tests are not conducted in certain areas because yeah. they're just going to ignore all that. Well, I mean, if some states say, if the state attorney, just like in forensics, if, if the Texas state attorney general says, you can't do this, mm-hmm. If you do it, you're going to jail, then, you know, companies aren't going to do pen tests there because they're not going to send their people down there to get arrested. So, And then they're going to get ransomware yeah. because they're not – anyway, not that so that happened me, in Texas. Let me throw out a devil's advocate question. It, it, is a physical security uh, test really necessary in, in, our, in our test – and and, and Tyler and Jeff weigh in because you guys are, you know, the the active pen testers in the group right now. But how, how necessary is the physical security aspect of a what is supposed to be a technical cyber security penetration test exercise? So I would take this in two diff- twofold, right? Having I'm actually on a physical right now, just getting back from you know multiple companies, Mexico, Paris, kind of doing these all over. One of the reasons that it is a viable and necessary test is companies need to understand if even if they do have a fully hardened external you know firewall they've got good spear phishing they've got good detection for initial access uh, and they have worldwide headquarters and threat profiles in say China or Hong Kong these are things that an attacker is going to know and they're going to be looking at if they've sent a bunch of spearfish well many of them are not wanting to travel a motivated adversary is going to pay off someone to go get in physically yep. and how do you how do you test against that how do you know if that's a, a physical vector the second part to that is many of these companies don't have the full security uh, maturity or understanding at the top levels or with the economic buyers and so you have to get the impact and the buy-in and prove that, yes, someone can do it. Yes, you have, you know, we weren't able to get all these fish in. We weren't able to get past your firewall. You don't have any vulnerabilities from outside. But we were able to get in through a physical meet. And so without that physical access or that physical uh, entry point, uh, many of these companies are very difficult to get into. However, once you're in, and that could be physically, then it's a pretty soft uh, interior and yep. they don't realize that that threat and that that actual risk so you have to show them the risk and how you show them is through you know one of the means and physical is one of the necessary but I, I i think the point to underscore there is not necessarily the attacker physically traveling getting on an airplane or traveling in any means to go to a target right nope in uh, i was successful when i was doing pen tests where it, you just you evaluate your circumstances, right? It was an educational institution. We were pen testing. They wanted to see what their trust level was, what their security was uh, physically. Happened to have a student intern working with me at the time. I'm like, you look, you're, you're you are actually are a student, right? Here's the thumb drive. 
go to all the sensitive areas of the, the organization and say you're from the help desk and say you got this USB to plug in. And so like the OPSEC and even the, the whole storyline that I was asking the person to do, a, a large percentage of the population could could do, yeah. right? Like you find someone that's a, that's a student or fits the profile and here's your story. I'm from the help desk. I need two minutes on your computer. Person was like, yeah, no problem, right? Plugs a thumb drive yep. in. I'm like, hey, just cut. all you have to do is drag and drop that core impact agent <laughs> onto the desktop, double click it. And you're done. And like, oh, like I'm good. I just need to drop this value, you know, this valuation management software on your system. Gave them a couple of, you know, like storylines if they ask questions, which largely weren't needed. And you're good, right? And so, not only is that again to Tyler's point, proving a point to upper management as to how easy it is. It's an educational uh, exercise for those working for the organization. To again, I come back to the narrative. Everyone likes to trust and then verify. In that situation, you need to teach your employees not what to look for, not to profile the person, not to look at what they're carrying, but verify and then trust and be like, you know what, if someone comes in and says they're from IT, here's three people you call to verify you know, who that person, if it fails, you don't let them in and you call security. It was our, our first whole tier in Surbanes and Hippo was doing physical pen tests because mm-hmm. I was a huge advocate that if you get physical access, you own them. I yeah. mean, I mean, all this fancy stuff's great, but the if the simplest path to victory is just to walk in the damn fire door at three o'clock in the morning and walk into the server room, which I did on multiple occasions. I mean, yeah, heck, I, it doesn't even need social engineering. I didn't have to do shit. I just went around the back of the I mean, building. You guys know that you physical pen, or I have done them in the past, right? Most of us have, all of us have done that, right? I'll, I'll never Some, forget. I, you know, I got. I you just walk in, story. right? Right. <laughs> Clipboard and account. I, I, I will never forget one, one organization I walked into, um, and I, I literally went to the bathroom, not because I was trying to hide out, because I needed to go to the bathroom, <laughs> okay? Happens. And, and there was a door in the bathroom, and I opened the door, and it was a network wiring closet. <laughs> so many so, of us have those stories, and they're not fables like the server in the wall no, at the university. The deal, like These are real right? deals, yeah. Yeah. So all I did was pull up a chair that was in the closet mm-hmm. and closed the door and camped out for half a day. Right. I mean, it, it literally stuff like that happens. And um, so it, physical, it turns out, is a relatively soft target with yep. a low skill barrier to entry. Um, and and let me you know, tell you a story about yeah. that. Not a not a story story, but so I was giving a presentation to a bunch of law enforcement people, and I was talking about how we carried all these tools with us because I was trying to convince them how important physical security was, mm-hmm. and they were looking at the stuff I had. And one of the law enforcement people who was from New York said, "If you bring that into New York, you're going to get arrested because you have lock picks, a wrecking bar." And, and some other stuff there. And I said, well, couldn't this screwdriver be used as a, as a burglary tool? And he goes, sure. And he goes, and I can arrest you for having it too. All mm. I got to do is be able to convince somebody that you were going to use that for burglary. So, I mean, all this stuff is very squishy. And when I first moved to Rhode Island, I had lock picks. I had all kinds of stuff. I had a, a, a twister box. Mm-hmm. And, and my twister box was, was even, you know, cons- is if it's illegal in the United States. I bought it in Hong Kong. And because it's a twister, it's a twister box you could use to to uh, jailbreak uh, phones. Oh, okay. And uh, it was illegal. 
And I had to go to the state police to tell them that I had these things because I didn't want to get pleased because he told me, he said, if you get pulled over and they search your car and you've got lock picks and other burglary tools, you can be charged with it. And it's like, yikes. And so same thing here. You start, these guys, you know, effectively a physical pen test could be considered a burglary. Although if there's no complainant, I'm not sure exactly how they charge you. But if there is a complainant, they can charge you with burglary. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's a very, you know, Doug's got a, it's got a good point. It's a very squishy line. Um, you know, coming full circle though, I I have a lot of empathy for the coal fire guys because they did dot the T, uh, dot yeah. the T's, dot the I's and cross the T's. They did all the right things and they got trapped into a political yep. shit show, uh, which is, has got them in the position they're in. And, um, Yes, it sends shockwaves through the industry. Yes, it makes us think twice about engaging in these things because even if you do the right things all the way up the chain of command, you don't know if you're going to get into an interagency fight like that. You just have yep. no idea. And then you're sitting uh, there trying to provide you know, counsel for yourself and everything else because you got a big problem. And it, right or wrong, you're caught in the middle of a, of a war and it's going to suck. Mm. Yes. The, other, the other thing I think, to take to take the other side of this is there are times in which we do recommend not having a, a physical pen test, right? Like there are cases where it makes a lot more sense if the company understands and they have full buy-in and they're working down their maturity line and their security roadmap and they're really just trying to get a good test and get good coverage and, and be comprehensive. We'll often work with them and just say, listen, like we could get in physically. You obviously know that. Yeah. Let's save your time, money, and budget and right. put that towards you know a better return on investment, which would be more coverage on an internal side. Yeah, and, and Tyler, well, thank it, you, Tyler, because to me, that's probably 99.9% of the companies out there. I think there's I, very few companies that are mature enough out of all the companies in the world. There's very few companies that are you know mature enough to need that type of testing. Well, I'm, I'm going to argue with Jeff on that because I won't say Please. 99% because I, I agree with you in, in theory, Jeff, but, but we were actually auditing companies that had physical security organizations that were set up to try to prevent these things, and, and they needed to be tested because they had spent money on these things. And I agree with you. It, 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 often we can just say, sure, we'll get past them or somebody will pick a lock or whatever. But the idea that I could just literally stroll past a paid trained security guard at 3 o'clock in the morning in a rental car was an important piece of information for that company to know because okay, then they were able to well, sit you're, there. You're, you're bringing in an, an additional layer, though, and, and I would agree with, with you, especially when you have – you know, in the early days of this industry, there was a big debate on whether you should outsource or not. You know, so yeah. the idea of a third party was anathema in the very beginning. And I always used to point to all these companies saying, well, we have a policy against not doing anything with a third party. I said, the guy at the front desk, does he work for you? No, he, he's a third party. Your physical security is a third party. So, yeah, when it's a third party, absolutely it's legitimate. You know, same argument for doing using a third party managed security. Uh, well, and, and we did we did a quick assessment of it. So if we walked through and said you don't have any physical security, so just assume it's going to be compromised. So basically, all this yep. is a waste of time. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, I I mean, so but, but I I just wouldn't say it's ninety nine percent of companies don't need that. I I think that you need to look at your situation and say, can students just walk into my server room, uh, or can I put up a, a metal door? Well, you know, I'll, I'll debate uh, percentage points, but I, in my experience, 
the vast majority of companies, I can't think of an example where there's one customer I've ever had where they were mature enough where they were really ready for a test, meaning it wasn't extremely easy. It, it wasn't very successful, whatever we – I mean, sometimes we didn't even try to do it and it just happened. Well, you know, I, It wasn't I, our intent and we just you – know, like I, Jeff. Yeah. I think you're, Jeff. I just think your percentages are a little high. I don't know if I have data to back that up, but I think that one of the differentiators is if you do have security guards or not, right? Or trained personnel, whether it's third party or internal, whose job it is to monitor and control physical access. If you have that. I think there needs to be some level of testing, especially if you have procedures in place, which I think is another variable. If you're taking sanction in security that, well, I have a physical person there who's monitoring and maintaining access, and therefore I don't need to test it, and maybe you haven't put process and procedures in place, maybe you're not ready for a test. Put some process and procedures in place first, then, then do your test. If you're just saying, look, I had this open position. I created this position. This person's job is to make sure people sign in, right? And that's the only process and procedure you have. Jeff, there's no need to test it, right? But if you've done some awareness and training and said these are the processes you follow, right, then I think it's worthwhile for you to not just test the processes but also test the people and not all the people test get the person well, who does a good and, job and have them do internal training and some of this is about degrees too we, we didn't james bond this stuff you know it, it wasn't right. about like oh yeah can i hang from a wire crawling through a duct and you know and get in through the sewer tunnel it was more like can i walk past the front desk in the doctor's office and get into the file room yeah and 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 cobit recommended those and hipaa recommended those and you know and our opinion was we shouldn't be able to do this and i want to prove to you that we can because if you ask them they'll always say oh no someone would stop you and then i would literally go in the doctor's office and just go, you know, I would walk in there with a clipboard and go, hi, we're inspecting the outlets. And yeah, let I me mean, in. Well, in, in healthcare, it, it, it wasn't a massive yeah. expense for them where we were James Bonding it. It was just literally like, do you have even basic approaches to this? But I think, yeah, them? but your your uh, industry also kind of determines. Because healthcare and hospitality, there's the public is walking and, through. But the law said difficult. they needed to have it. So we were yeah. cheating if they did. And uh, there's, So there's a couple things missing, though, that I think not everyone considers when, when doing physicals. You're not you're not only there to test like say third parties, right? Like the third party thing is nice. You're testing that, but that also is a a layer and defense in depth, right? If you're relying strictly on the third party and not looking at, okay, once they get past that, then what's our, what's our layer uh, of defense, but then taking that a step further, um, when you're doing a physical, you're testing multiple avenues that a lot of people aren't considering. Is your USB ports locked down? Are you, Mm. Are you doing your vendor ID? If someone brings in an outside jump drive from their home, maybe they're not even doing a physical. They work for you. Uh, Is that something that is going to get exploited? Is someone running wire for a contracting company able to go over the false ceiling and get into the server room? That's a problem, right? So these are things that you're testing multiple layers of defense in depth. And Tyler, Tyler, what what you're highlighting, though, is... There's been a shift over the past, you know, thirty plus years, right? Where uh, in the past, computers were housed in one location, and uh, it was just inherent in the culture that if you shouldn't be there, then you're out, right? And I saw this in action, the culture, 
in the university, right? That had many universities, right? Had some of the first computers, had the mainframes, had the server rooms, had some of the first computers in history, right? At universities, they're very closely guarded, physical security. We knew the operator should be there. Everyone else, like GTFO, like you shouldn't be here. Now, technology is everywhere. The ports, uh, to Tyler's point, right? USB ports, Ethernet ports, computers at the central workstation, at conference rooms that you can walk in, like I did in physical tests, walk around the front desk and go, oh, I'm here for a meeting. I'm just going to wait over there. And there's a conference room and they've got all kinds of technology that I can interface with, right? So the landscape has changed that I think has made physical tests more important whereas before you kind of knew my servers are on the ninth floor of this building in mit and that's where they are and no one's allowed in there because only the operators can yeah can that, interface. that's right. where yeah. the priests were right the priests yep. exactly joff yes yeah so we might be splitting hairs a little here a little bit but everything that tyler just hair. described i used to do you know during pci assessments because we would have to do a physical walk around of a data center back in the days where there were data centers that were actually at the customer sites and primarily we were looking for uh you know all the doors had to be locked into the data center in and out you know mm -hmm. there had to be there had to be camera coverage and like that but i would all the time say oh by the way you know, especially when, it, you know, later on it was colo facilities. I'm like, you know, you, all your servers are in a cage, but the cage is only, you know, eight or 10 feet high. Right, so we could right. just prop, prop a ladder up and then we turn the corner and there'd be a ladder propped up. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, like that type of thing. I mean, that was all just, I mean, that wasn't a physical security exercise. That was just, you know, value added service. No, so Jeff, and I, like, I agree. I, there's tremendous value. And I see your point now to a physical security audit versus a test right okay like asking people what's your process and procedures let's physically walk around and then making recommendations saying like look we don't have to go through the full like you know test of like sending someone in uh and doing this like basically sure up these things and then maybe later on when your maturity uh level is appropriate maybe then we do a test Jeff, well, I totally well, it's agree. It's always a sliding scale. Yeah. Yeah. Right? You audit and then test. Yeah, absolutely. That's what we were yeah. doing. So we were auditing. We do a walkthrough. We right. ask them what the procedure is, and they say we lock the server room door. If they say we have no procedures, then yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, it, but, right? I mean, it's an opportunity. But, but when they to... said they locked the server room door, I went down and see if it was locked. Mm -hmm. And you know, and so I mean, and maybe it's just semantics, but I mean, I mean, that was what we felt like was required. It wasn't. So it's funny at the university uh, when I worked at Brown University, we had uh, had to have a pen test from an external firm as part of project and autumn whatever right and they worked very it was a more of a purple team test right they worked with me as the security person and they're like we have to do physical testing and they're like we want to test like the server room and i'm like good luck with that i'm like like seriously guys like don't waste your time like the people that work there are very very aware of security and they have very very clear defined policies i'm really more concerned about what you can get to on our 144-acre campus, like, outside of that room. And he's like, so just for due diligence, went down there, jiggled a few knobs, kind of walked around, and he's like, and, like, someone looked at me and, and, like, came out and asked me, like, who are you and why should you be here? And he's like, I was done. Like, took me 10 minutes. Like, you know, you're cool. I'll spend the rest of my time figuring out maybe what improvements we can make in other areas, sure. right? And that's, that's an appropriate test, Jeff, to your point, right? You've got well, to model I, I, the test for your environment. 
Yeah, and thank you for clarifying for me. I guess most 99% of the time you can just walk somebody through and and, and observe sure. uh you know what the things are. I mean, but even when it's it, it's a physical compromise and you're trying to point things out, I think it's I think it's important to deli- you know, talk about the objectives, what are the targets yeah. because yeah. if you're just trying to do physical compromise, it doesn't need to be pen testers, just you know, hire some firm to just try to break in. I, Absolutely. I and our yeah. standard you know, private our detectors or something. Our standard but, but, was an uh, average Chris, person. Chris had Nagy tell some great stories and I, I think the, the things that Chris was talking about where the organization has put a lot of time and effort into hiring the right people, creating the process and procedures, right? And they're hiring Chris's firm as an example to be like, all right, look, if you were to really do intelligence gathering to be able to spoof caller ID, to be able to go through those lengths, how far would you get? Right. I think for some organizations, that's a really valuable exercise. And Chris tells great stories about, you know, the 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 wins are when he can go into an organization, try and get in, and just like push those people, and they just push back and not push back so much in a creative sense, but push back and go. I was taught, and my procedures tell me like, basically, I'm not letting you in. And then Chris would tie something else, and you can listen to the segment, right? And he's like. And I would try something else. And be like, yeah, like still your story doesn't check out. Like you're not getting in. And Chris would try something else and beg and plead and then send someone else in and do OS in and try and spoof things. And they'd still be like, I'm not letting you in. Like I'm following my my process and procedures and I'm just not letting you in. Like it's there's no reason for me to do that. And I think those are really valid tests too to make sure your stuff is yeah. working. Chris's recommendations on some of those tests that he talked about on the show was take that security guard who really understood your process procedures and what was at stake and make that person the champion and have them train other people in the mm-hmm. organization. It, to me, yeah. that's a win. Yeah. Yeah. One of yeah. the hard and parts not- with with orgs now for, for what we're doing for tests and when you do physicals is you're really trying to test the the responses of, yeah. of all of the organizations and the blue team. It's really hard to do a full red team penetration test that's covert and only a few people know about it, especially right. across you know, global organizations. Yeah. You know, we do, I've done pen tests for the last you know eight years and almost every one of uh, our engagements have, have a pen test on you know, Fortune 1 to 500. And the reason that most of them chose to do the physical side of that was because they would like to see how their staff reacted. What's yep. their security awareness? Yeah. How are their technological controls? And so you're not just there to test the the actual piece. You have to have things done in order, and it's really hard to do that by doing a walkthrough. We've done lots of walkthroughs and see the value after the fact, uh, but that doesn't always work when you're trying to test your blue team's defensive capabilities, and if no one knows about it, uh, kind of how do you get that initial access? How do you do the fish? How do you emulate a, yep. a sophisticated adversary appropriately? And you can often throw a physical on at the end and do an assumed breach or do fishing only. And and those are appropriate means for, for some companies, but a lot of companies want to see what their actual uh, emulated or risk profile is. Now, Dr. Doug's on the show, and I want to transition the conversation to artificial intelligence. And we have two oh, stories <laughs> that I think play into this. Play into this very nicely, or Joff as well, right? Or any of us, really, right? I think this is really kind of geeky, nerdy stuff that we like. And this headline called geeky, nerdy stuff. Now, what's interesting (laughs) is a lot of times headlines catch my interest, and oftentimes I'm really disappointed, and I use it as an example of what not to write and a technique like not to have, or right. But this really 
kind of impressed me in terms of the headline was memes could be our secret weapon against pesky bots. Now I was skeptical. I'm like, hold on. I mean, I, I appreciate a good meme just as much as the next person. Right. But to me, this one has merit. So they propose memes could be one of the strongest techniques to distinguish between a human and a bot based on conscious and uh, conscience, I'm sorry, and interpretation. After all, bots don't get cultural references and online humor the way humans do. And when I read that, your minds are going because some of you are Trekkies, right? Most of us are Trekkies, <laughs> right? That I fondly remember Data, Star Trek Next Generation. Anatomically for, correct. Right? Atomically correct for you non-Trekkies out there trying to understand humor. There are many scenes in that mm -hmm. television series where you can see Data really struggling to understand humor. And he was a very, I mean, in the context of science fiction, a very the storyline really explored artificial intelligence in that character and the one thing that they would come back to those was to watch the show right was we all thought it was funny which is ironic that the jokes were lost on poor data right and so yep. if you use that as a measure to determine whether it's a human or a machine it's a valid test memes are one way to test that maybe i mean the, the meme in the article <laughs> was this little girl running with uh, some kind of a thing in her hand and some of us have our icon challenged i saw it the title says coffee is ready and i have no idea what this child was doing I, I, my brain said child possessed by demons plans to devour Doug, paper I, towel i'd be lying if i got every <laughs> reference in every meme because some of them are very obscure no i mean right? I'm, just, I'm just being facetious right. yeah, I, no, no, no. but like so you can't do one right you I, gotta I, show a series i of, agree yeah. in reality that that this is going to be something humor hum, i mean has humor been explored in in cultural references with respects to humor as a, a kind of like a, a Turing kind of it, test, or well, I don't know about a Turing test, but it's certainly been explored by explored by psychologists and sociologists, and it yeah. it varies wildly from culture a to culture. A way to differentiate human versus machine. But I mean, what, what a German may find funny is very different from what uh, a British person might find funny. But I mean, I, yeah, I no, but you're right. That presents a very interesting uh, kind of cultural aspect to it. Is that each culture has different forms. British humor, for example, very, very different Dry from Ameri and American humor. Johnny and I, we were talking, Johnny's really into kung fu movies and I've explored that genre uh, through and through, right? And I've had to ask my friends who are Chinese, like, I, I don't get it. Like, explain not just the humor, but some of the differences in yeah. the way characters and storylines and cultural references are portrayed is just very like the for example humor aside the when we talk about a vampire or a zombie in u.s culture it's very different as to how that's portrayed in chinese films oh, yeah. right very very different very different but uh, similarities but different enough that i think a computer would have a really tough time using that as a differentiator given that cultural variable Right. I Does mean, I, I guess it depends on how smart you think the AI is. Mm. I mean, it, I mean, data was pretty smart. Yeah, and our AI is nowhere and, near what is no, portrayed and, in the and movies. I mean, yeah. I mean, but like this, this thing with the coffee is ready. There was four options you could choose. I could argue that all four of them are correct, and mm. I, 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 sure. I, I agree with you that an AI probably isn't going to initially understand a meme and get it. 
but I'm not totally convinced that humans will either. And I think it's going to be just like the, you know, the, it's uh, interesting. It's almost, well, you're, it's almost random what humans think is funny. Right. Like I could think something's funny and Doug wouldn't. How do you transfer that to, how do, how do you yeah. add that weighted value to that, to that ML categorization? And yeah. I, I, I like, I think all my jokes are relevant. funny, but I'm the only one that thinks that. So <laughs> I mean, so, hold on, Jeff. Yeah. And who's, we're, who's waiting? We're, we're talking a variation of false positive here. Yeah. And it's a hard and it's a hard nut to crack in this context. I think. Mm. I mean, you saw people arguing about the ones we have now, like saying, you know, humans, not 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 machine learning devices or anything. Right. Saying, well, what constitutes a street sign? You know, I mean, is is it a, is it a street sign the state put up, or is it a sign that belongs to a store? And I mean, I see people arguing about those very things, and I, I could easily argue that every every option on this picture is correct. I mean, the child could be running away from coffee. Maybe dad has been beating the family because, you know, he drinks too much coffee or not enough coffee. And so she's running away because she heard dad was having coffee. Um, she's scared of coffee because, you know, the coffee was thrown on her by her crazed brother, who's a psychopath. <laughs> um, the child is holding coffee in this small plastic container. Well, it could be. And that's why she's screaming because the plastic container just, is melting through I'm her hand. I'm having visions of the Whopper playing tic-tac-toe and just... Uh -huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So a machine learning algorithm might actually learn how to deal with this. An AI could, depending on that person who programmed yeah. it. I don't know that this is the saving grace for distinguish a, a Turing test to distinguish between between a bot, a botnet or whatever, and a human, because I think the problem with memes is that they're too bizarre to start with. They're left up to interpretation. I mean, much. the memes that you post, we won't get into that. Please don't. A lot of people would find them incredibly offensive and, as a sense, might not get them. It'd be interesting to develop a, in a machine learning algorithm and have it score based on offensive versus funny versus not Paul funny. Wins. <laughs> Or Larry. Well, you, you know, Good here's job. the thing, right? And now, <clears throat> I know that Doug's a doctor and everything. That's right, damn but, it. But um, he's dead, Jim. He's dead, Jim. <laughs> you know, frankly, I'm put, putting on the glasses here. I'm not frankly, a doctor. I'm just a country programmer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a doctor, Jim, not a country programmer. <laughs> no, fr frankly, there are there are two, the two variations of. Uh, uh, machine learning uh, slash artificial intelligence, and one is one is a statistical based model that is a classification system, right? You yep. you develop feature classifications, mm -hmm. you have rules that you train the model. Ba basically, you're training the child, and you feed those rules into. Um, uh, sorry, you feed a data set into those rules of various uh, stimuli. Those data sets are either good or bad uh, or otherwise, and then you train the model and you save it to disk uh, or whatever your storage mechanism is, and that model is ultimately something whereby it is a statistical uh, representation that is calculated, uh, probably random decision tree-based, random decision forest-based, and the model is saved to disk, and the decisions are going to be left-right based on whether the 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 uh, following subsequent input is either good or bad based on the training data. Yeah, that's one that's one iteration here. This is machine. This is what I would classify as machine learning. The second version that exists out there in the industry is is more of the neural network uh, based 
uh, algorithms, which are truly more of an artificial intelligence, those are things that uh, companies are finding um, as they develop them and as they let them loose um, that can be trained into being essentially bad children and running away into directions that they cannot predict and they have to and, shut them Jeff, down. In your first, those are actually, frankly, more interesting to me. In, in your first example, Joff, is learning. that is that supervised machine learning in your first example and unsupervised in your second, or is the first one could be supervised or unsupervised? And uh, no, the networks. first one certainly has to be supervised yeah. machine mm -hmm. learning yep. uh, because you have to actually give it data sets. Give it data, right. You have to tell it. Um, the correct you know, based outcomes. on this criteria that you have developed, right. maybe four or five features that you're classifying on. Um, this is a good data set versus a bad data set, and they have to actually make statistical decisions and serialize that to disk or whatever the storage right. mechanism and is. And a neural network is more of the unsupervised. Yep. Nature. Neural network yep. is more of the unsupervised learning. So, so but it still I, needs I, outcomes. I the neural net still needs outcomes so you can you, train it. The user still has to provide the outcomes. You still but have not to have a input. way to weight those yeah. neural net decisions because as the neural net learns, it has to still weight its decisions internally mm -hmm. on the hidden layers. So you, you don't know necessarily how those weights develop, but mm -hmm. there has to be sort of a starting point and an ending point, and the neural net finds a path to those places. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, neural net is something that that is more akin to the human brain because yes. it does evolve as it iterates, and it right. is definitely an iterable. Uh, kind of process, whereas uh, the machine learning approach with these uh, uh, large-scale uh, statistical and they basically linear algebra kind of approaches, that they are purely classification-based and they are purely, um, you know, algebraic calculations that are being applied to an existing trained model. Uh, uh, so, Jeff, you know, yeah. So I have a question. Understanding that this is just one possible application of AI and, you know, this whole idea of, uh, you know, discovering bots versus real people. Uh, my question to anyone is, is there a difference between trying to find uh, the bot versus trying to find the human? And the only analogy I can think of is maybe in you know in the early days of fire firewalls, you know, is it a you know the default allow or the default deny type of approach? That's a good. That's so a that, great. That's, that's actually, a great question. Jeff, it's, a, yeah. it's a good question because that's exactly where where I was angling my uh, background at. Mm -hmm. If you look at the machine learning approach, the outcome of that model that you train is only as good as the various inputs that you train it against. And you can certainly right. characterize different children if you like. You can have you know, a child that's more ba uh, biased towards looking for certain characteristics um, versus right. a child that's you know, sort of more biased to looking for other characteristics. But so I it guess really depends on your goal when you're training the model. So I, what I hear Joff saying is that you could have a model that is more looking for the computer and a model that's more looking for the human and then maybe combine those to help make the decision. Right, right. And, and, and there's going to be no perfect approach. Right. Uh, be, uh, yeah. Understanding it's not a perfect approach, and I'm struggling to try to find the right way to ask the question, but it's kind of like... Uh, you know, it, it's really, really hard to detect if something is a human because of all the variables. But is it is there is there a slightly easier problem to solve by 
you know, coming up with, you know, a conclusion, I guess, if, if that's the right term of, well, I can't tell if it's human, but it's definitely not a bot. Yeah, yeah but there's a difference between the artificial intelligence that is, uh, you know, trying to play chess. Like, we mm. know that there's a human playing chess against a computer, right? Isn't the like the the foundations of AI was but, basically early but, computers that were like everybody's- artificial intelligence was we're going to teach the computer to play chess. The artificial intelligence or machine learning that's applied to differentiating between the two is a different, almost a different science than trying to pit a computer I, against a human. But to everybody's play chess. omitting an assumption. And the assumption is, what is it you're trying to achieve? So yeah, uh, if the yeah. device was supposed to behave like a human, which I think is a yes. very foolish and naive thing, and we've tried mm-hmm. to program something to act like a human, then it, it's tough to say what Jeff's question's outcome might be, mm-hmm. because like Eliza. So Eliza is a good example. That It was a, an early effort at, at, at a sort of machine learning kind of thing. But it really was, it wasn't that. It was not even learning. It was just supposed to emulate humans and fool the Turing test. So there's a difference between... So, the, so it differentiate the, the Turing test from the Voigt-Kampf test for us. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a, 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 Turing te- a Turing test was based on a parlor game that was essentially trying to distinguish by asking questions to people that were hidden behind a screen. So you were supposed to And pick- this was part of Alan Turing's yes. research? It so, is t- Alan Turing, Turing's Turing, stuff, yeah. Turing based- They didn't just like base it on... Well, Turing was-, was doing a thought exercise, and he was saying, you know, if a machine could behave like humans and, and and he used this this parlor game that people played in the and 19th he, century and he was doing this in the 30s 30s so in the 19th century there was a parlor game where, where three people sat behind a screen and there were different variants of it where one was like trying to figure out who the who the female was or or who the who the lawyer was or something like that so, it's oh, so this kinda, goes back even yeah oh, okay. so so the the interrogator who was the person who actually knew what was going on wrote uh, he asked questions, and then the people wrote their responses, and he read them back to the person playing the game. Mm-hmm. So I write a question, and I say, what do you think of coffee? And each person writes a response, and if the objective is to try to guess who the, who the woman in the group is or who, who the person who's a cook is or whatever, mm-hmm. then the interrogator reads the answers back to the person playing, and that person tries to guess who, who it is. So Turing was saying, if you could take a machine and put it in that group, mm. and the interrogator... differentiate humans the, from right. machines? Yeah. So, so the true sort of fallacy, and then Turing would agree with this, I think, the, the true fact, he was never trying to do this sci-fi thing of proving something with the Voight-Kampf problem. Right. He was no, just, he was a computer scientist. Absolutely. Through, one of the first. And, in, in, and yeah, he, would, yeah. he would even say that, you know, look, what you, you could program a computer to emulate a human. But that's not intelligence. No. And that's yeah. what Eliza right. was. It was an attempt, to, and Whimsy was the first thing that got close to being. It was, a, it was a program called Whimsy, and it just interjected random things almost in an attempt to fool the, the, the person playing because they're thinking, well, a computer would always respond the same way. So if I say, do you like dogs? Uh, a computer will always say yes or no, but a human might go, well, sometimes. Mm. So program the thing so that it, it gives you some weird answer. And Whimsy would say stuff like, Dogs are cool, but what about roses? And and it mm. fooled people all the time because they're going, well, that, a computer would never say something so strange and, and obtuse as that. And and so there's a there's a huge assumption here about what we're trying to test. And so is that where? 
Turing came up with the Turing test exactly. to differentiate between right. those Right, and answers. so he was yeah. just sort of, th- he was a thought exercise for mm-hmm. him about how a machine might fit into this, and it was never intended to be a Voigt-Kampf test, which was, of course, attempting to distinguish where the replicants were and who were the humans. And is that a total sci-fi thing? or is It that- was a total sci-fi thing. Okay. It was completely made up. Yep. Um, but uh, basically, the Turing test was never intended by him, I don't think, to be some kind of defining factor. Between you know, human and machine. But, but we adapted it later right. to try to, and it's become this awful meme of, you know, if something passed the Turing test, it must be a human. But it's yeah. not. And would you even want to program a machine to be like a human? So it's like whimsical, and some of them become psychopathic, and that's how you get Skynet. And, but the reason we're talking about Voigtkampf and, and all of that is because Blade Runner, as many of us know, listening to the show, we're nerds, huge Blade Runner fans. You've got Hell the, yes. You've got the, the T-shirt on, Doug. And uh, it's set in November of 2019. Yeah. And so, which is where we are today. I mean, so you I, see, rem- uh, I remember having this experience back in 1984. But go on. Well, Philip K. Dick wrote the original story, which has nothing to do with the movie, mind you, other than in a very vague way, uh, back in the 60s. And and he was mm-hmm. sort of exploring the idea that could machines start to fulfill components of our lives. Uh, that were being unfulfilled by humans and could those machines start to replace humans as important components of our lives. It's amazing that uh, when we look at today, we carry smartphones and have all this technology. It's amazing to me, listening to Stephen Levy's book, right, that folks were thinking about this stuff in the 50s. And then if you look even right. further back, like right. people were right. thinking about this even long before that. Right. And so much so that in the book, in the 50s and 60s at MIT, there was professors and classes on artificial intelligence. Yeah. And I think that's were, lost on, a, on many of the... people were very yeah. worried so, so, about so this point stuff. Of, point, mm-hmm. point of clarification, uh, Alan Turing actually published... Uh, that paper on the Turing test in the 50s. I think you well, mentioned earlier it was like well, 30s, he was, but it was actually he was, in the 50s. His, some of his seminal works were like 33 and 34, and then, yeah, that paper about the Turing test was later, so it was... It yeah, was the actual was, summary paper. That was the basically test. the birth but of... But like the machine learning paper, the famous machine learning paper is like 1939 or something. I mean, it was wow. like crazy. Okay. So it goes yeah. way back. All right, yeah, so but, I mean, let's talk about Blade Runner because there's like, ridic- like freaking ridiculous articles that uh, state things like this. Uh, the article that I read, one of them, was, and we don't need the Voigt-Kampf test yet, which I debate, but how many times have you been asked to mark all the traffic lights on a grid picture to prove you're not a robot and gain access to a website? Yeah. And can I, you do it? I don't know. I think, <laughs> we're kind of, I think we're kind of way off the rails on... Comparing this to a Turing test and absolutely right. I mean, I I think it's important to point out something though that I don't think I made quite clear, Um, and I'm backtracking a little bit, but uh, of of from a fascination perspective, the neural network uh, algorithms are much more interesting from a self determination and learning perspective than the traditional machine learning statistical approach. Yeah. Supervised learning is just that. It's going to have specific cra- classification criteria. It's going to generate a specific statistical score based on the input from the model that has been derived. And while it can be dynamically updated, 
it still is going to have a point-in-time score that will be a conclusion. Neural network, on the other hand, is potentially going to continuously evolve, um, and depending on how it's programmed, I, I think that is a much more fascinating topic, and I think that's as sure. computing resources continue to ex- explode exponentially, I think the neural network space is going to get really, really interesting. But if you ever want to gauge as to where we are with this, have a con- try to have a conversation with your voice assistants. <laughs> uh, you you can't. Like, right. yeah, we're not quite there yet, right? <laughs> in, in a Maybe lot of that's because they're trying to emulate humans and try to have a conversation with another human. Like well, no, I, I'll tell you exactly why it is. I think, and you know, and Google can argue with me about this, but I'm, I'm guessing I'm going to be right. Uh, or they won't admit it, is that the systems that work are going to be primarily supervised learning systems right yes, now. Yes, mm-hmm. but there's, That's there's, where it's at. There's two different things here, and this is back to Blade Runner in some ways. There is a, a an artificial intelligence that is designed to interact with humans. So that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. So that's a system that had to be supervised learning. It had to be trained in human because it had to understand humans. It has to understand humans. But then there's the there's the Voigt comp problem. So the replicants in Blade Runner were beyond humans. They didn't react the way humans did to anything. And Voigt comp was more like a lie detector test and a Turing test. Mm. They were looking at uh, the replicants' responses to empathy situations Mm -hmm. and things like that and trying to measure their responses because humans responded differently to these scenarios inherently like a lie detector so that's what they were measuring that's why they were measuring their their retinal response and their Mm -hmm. blood pressure and all these kind of things to see if they responded differently to empathy situations than humans so a sociopath might not have passed a void comp test so same Mm, thing with the replicants so the replicants were essentially sociopaths they had no empathy for humans. They were designed to do a specific task, and they were somewhere off in left field because nobody cared if they interacted with humans. They were designed to be military. Uh, Skynet's the same example. Skynet was not designed to understand humans. It was going to squash them like bugs if it needed to. But there are, in science fiction, which is totally based on this conversation alone, right? And then if you go back and start reading the research, if you look at Star Wars, totally just built, like arbitrarily built feelings in. You can you hear C three PO in the movies go? Right. I have a bad feeling about this, and you're like, wait, hold on. But he was programmed to say that. You were programmed to say he that. He was a supervised learning device. It was designed to interact with humans. So the difference in C three PO and Roy Batty is Roy Batty was designed to be a robot soldier. Mm-hmm. You don't need to impose human values on a robot soldier who's fighting an alien war. Right. You, tr- you create a device that learns to solve the problem in any way imaginable. If that means whatever, scorched earth doesn't make any difference because that's the reason you had a robot soldier. C-3PO's got to interact with humans and But help it's why them. robots make the best bounty hunters. Of course. Cause I, they, don't they don't sp- care. I don't want to spoil anything about... What's out there? In the I mean, I mean, Star Wars I mean, Roy, but. Roy Batty. If if the guy he's trying to catch or, or destroy is holding up a baby and saying, "I'll kill the baby," Roy Batty just shoots them both and says, "Problem solved." End of story. Right. Whereas C three PO spends four hours trying to debate the issue with the with the guy and tries to talk him down. My kids ask the best questions. My middle son asked me. He's like, "How many different languages does C three PO speak?" Like. 
I love this question. He's fluent in over 400 forms of communication. Exactly. Right? Not all of them yeah, are wait, language. Wait, wait, Look, wait, I didn't hesitate in the answer. And he was like, wow. How do you love this question? <laughs> See, through me, I was a completely fictional character made out of fucking George Lucas's weird ass <laughs> dreams, man. I'm, come on. It comes from Philip Campbell and Akira Kurosawa. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, right? just, I'm just kidding. I think I, I love the question as well. I, you know, it's, it's good to dream. Um, but yeah, I, I, but I think I, that has shaped some of our views and opinions on what we're talking about today as artificial intelligence and machine learning. We need to we're, bring we're, people down we're, to reality and separate science fiction from reality. And even though much of what you know we're discussing today, uh, some of which was born from papers in the 1930s, yeah, first of all, amazing, but speaks to also when we look at all the data in front of us, right? Pun intended, that. We're we're not we're we're not quite there. Like there is a finite state of where we are, um, and I think that you know the nerd and all of us watching all the science fiction movies hopes that it continues to improve. But I also, on the flip side, think that's important to push the envelope of this technology. And certainly, we've seen in security to bring it back to security a lot of advances as to how this technology can help us as humans make decisions today. Right. Yep. We're we're in the crawl we're in the crawl phase. Agreed. Is, is where we're at. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And in the past fifty years, we're still in the crawl phase, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. No, it's yeah. Totally, totally true. Right. We're we're applying uh, classification systems and building models and and doing a pretty reasonable job at it. But these systems cannot think for themselves yet. Um, and uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, ethical questions around that. Um, for those who are experimenting in, in neural networks, uh, they already know that some of those algorithms are getting out of control and, and becoming unpredictable. And, and, and the default response right now in the neural network world is just to shut them down. Um, yeah. So, you know, if you really want to, if you really want to explore this topic in film, I think X. Machina, machina, ex machina, ex machina, machina. really yeah. pushes the envelope. Yeah, and is a really cool ride if you really want to like, like just take a lot of the facts off the table and just kind of go like dream and extrapolate. What go this read iRobot. Uh, iRobot. Uh, so that was a book before Asimov. Asimov wrote yes. this book again mm -hmm. in the '50s, I think. And he was exploring this very idea. Is that idea. what the movie's based on? Is Vaguely, yeah. Vaguely. But, but I mean, very, yeah. Very yeah. Okay. But Asimov was writing this thing about this robot who commits a murder. Mm. And he had these three rules of robotics. And they had developed this thing called the positronic brain, which was he was basically describing machine learning. Right. That was something that could exceed human capability that we couldn't understand. So he had these, these hard-coded rules had been put into the robot's brain to try to prevent... Skynet. Yeah. So he was trying to prevent Blade Runner from happening because he he said the engineers were worried. Blade Runner and Terminator before those storylines were even written. Yeah. Even written, right? Oh, yeah. long before. Oh, long before. I mean, but this is one of the best security books if we're talking about sci-fi in terms of security because if you think about that, it was about how do you write secure code when you think the code is going to evolve without beyond your control? How do you put constraints around code that you're going to turn loose in the wild and say, 
I don't know what it's going to do. Now, see, I think we're a long way from that because I just have problems debugging my own code, let alone worrying about that it's going to create a mind of its own, right? <laughs> I, I, I don't know that, that we're that far from it, I don't actually, either. Paul. I would, I would disagree. I think there, there's some very large entities, uh, you know, Google being yep. one of them, uh, probably Amazon being another. That well, and I, IBM Watson code. certainly has models that are well, you're, you're, you're stand, so that, We're standing somewhere along this canyon where somebody's going to come up with a way to do this and it's not going to be that far in the future. And it's going to right, be one right. of those it's going to be one of those big light bulbs that goes on and when it does it's going to be absolutely terrifying because when somebody figures out oh all I really need to do is this and all of a sudden you got code that's smarter than you mm. that can write itself and that can write new code mm -hmm. and develop new algorithms that we are not capable of understanding cuz we're, we're all living in 25 versions. Suddenly we turn into, it is Skynet. 25 versions suddenly, of the Matrix, basically. Yeah, well, yeah. it's Skynet sitting out there saying, I'm going to make the decision for what's best for humanity. Well, and, and, and you look mm. at it, uh, you know, I th something I said on the last show is the control plane, the control plane is software now. Yep. All right. Think about that. The control plane is software. And if we have potentially artificial intelligent algorithms that can be written, that can exert control over the control plane, then you can envision a future whereby those algorithms will exert that control without us directing them, uh, assuming, you know, and that's a bit of a stretch, but assuming that the algorithm has been turned loose into a self-learning kind of mode. And furthermore, the concentration of compute power is now sufficient to make that... Yep. Hmm. Uh, scalable at, at, at a level that should frighten us. And then uh, there's an ethics piece of, do we limit something that has the potential to grow beyond us? And yeah. it gets really scary, and that's why I felt so much sadness when uh, I saw the sex robots, because I felt sorry for them. Well, and when you watched... Yeah, there's, well, there's hold on, one, but when you watched Age of Ultron, too. Yeah. There's only right? one truck that, I mean, that's that, that storyline, basically. So if you can... If you can uh, Turn off the electricity, you terminate all of it. But if the control plane of the electrical grid yep. is within is the algorithm's control, yeah. then we're done. That's we're Skynet. Skynet. Skynet says, sorry, I'm out. No, you're not going to do that. Thank it's you like, very much. That was like one of the nerdiest conversations we've ever had yes. on the show. <laughs> I, I think we should probably wrap up. I agree. <laughs> I don't think yeah. we can top that job, right? <laughs> Well, I want to thank everyone for listening and watching this edition of Paul Security Weekly. Joff, take us out. All right. Over and out. Have happy dreams, everybody, about Skynet. 